BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting live and on demand from Buffalo, New York, where today is Sunday... February 26th, 2023, and uh, I am joined today, as, as, as all, well, as usual, by Chris Golo, who, who is, um, he too is, is, has been blading his head, and, um, and, and the minimalist Jesse Collins, hello. Good morning. Hello. Hello, guys. How are you? I'm, I'm good. How is Buffalo? It's, it's fun. It was very icy. I had a, I had like a, I've never experienced anything like this in all, all my life living in Buffalo. I had like, like, like a two inch thick sheet of ice on my car that I had to, it, it was a big project to get it off of my car. Uh, it was like a Friday shower. morning. Yeah. The, the streets were like an, a skating rink. I did not see this for myself, but I heard people were actually just putting on ice skates and skating across the ice, like going to the park where there's like a, a big landscape of open, what would be grass, but it was covered in ice. Mm-hmm. And, and I heard that people were ice skating on it. Is it like, there's like snow on the ground and there's ice over the snow. I don't know how this happened. Uh, the rain, like, cause that's, that's rained heavily on the ice. Yeah. That, that we, we had a very, it's, I wouldn't say it's quite ice skating, uh, down the street weather, but we had a lot of ice and, and we have like some snow on the ground and that will happen where like, It'll become so slick on top of the snow that you can just slide around like it's there's basically ice on top of the snow. I remember it happened once when I was in middle school and you could go sledding down the hill outside of the middle school with like your backpack. Like you put your backpack on your stomach and you'd slide down the hill because of how slick it was. But ice skating to the park is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> we have a few things to talk about here today. Um, I, de- I decided... In, in lieu of any major news subjects, but we had to have some, some new subjects to, to go through, we'll talk a little bit about the WB Performance Center and, and look at some data analysis that I was doing around um, talent and how many PLE matches they've had and what their experience was before they came to WWE. So we'll get to that. And if you want to participate today with any of your questions or comments, feel free, if you're watching live through YouTube, to submit a super chat. Um, one of the stories, though, that was in the news this week was from Fightful about a senior vice president who left WWE, uh, very much along the lines of, of, of talent development. Um, and that is, ooh, there we go. And, and that is, this is a report from Fightful uh, from Sean Ross Sapp. You reported that senior vice president of talent operations and strategy, James Kimball, has been terminated from the company. Uh, Sean Ross Sapp reported that it, it was due to a HR, a human relations 
human resources, human resources violation that caused his immediate termination, although no further details of the violation are, are known yet. Kimball previously worked with UFC. He spent nearly 10 years there. He was the vice president of operations at the UFC Performance Institute. He joined WWE in 2020. Um, he was heavily involved in the NIL, Next in Line, program with recruitment of college athletes uh, for the W Performance Center. He was a key figure in the Campus Rush Initiative and their W's partnership with Exos. So I'm reading partly from a, a, a report of that news from John Pollock, originally reported by, by Fightful. Um, and then Sean Rossap had a follow-up. Uh, later on, uh, it was noted to Fightful that the HR violation terminology is fairly broad could mean that no one else was directly affected but it wasn't confirmed to fightful what it meant beyond that um yeah a lot of people were surprised by by this news so that's in the news um i mean this is somebody who, who joined WWE as we said uh in 2020 he's very involved in a lot of the, the changes that we've seen to WWE's approach to recruiting talent um in terms of going after college athletes again with a, a less less of a focus on people with wrestling experience. In the NIL, I mean, that is one of the major things that WWE pushes at the kind of the corporate level. They love to talk about it. It comes up pretty much on every investor's call, at least somewhat. Um, they like to work with the media on covering it. I know The Athletic has had stories about the NIL. Um, I think it was Cameron Hawkins wrote a long article for The Ringer that came out like two weeks ago about... Um, the NIL deal, and he, I think, quotes Kimball extensively in it as like kind of like the the main executive that's kind of running this. He goes to like a he went to like a dinner where they have a meeting with like a lot of prospective NIL athletes and college athletes that might be interested in considering WWE. And Kimball's kind of like the main WWE executive that's there talking to these athletes. So he's a pretty big figure behind the scenes. Um, he wasn't there for a super long time, but again, I. It, like as as you mentioned, like HR violation could mean a lot of different things. Um, but so I don't want to speculate like a ton. But you look at WWE's backstage atmosphere. You have Vince McMahon and John Laurinaitis, two executives with the company, who had to resign or were fired or however you want to describe what happened with Vince for what could be described as HR violations. We know more information about what those guys were doing, but that could also be described as HR violations. So those are two executives. Here's a third executive getting fired. Pretty sounds like it was a pretty quick process, at least from what we heard. Mm-hmm. Um, again, for an HR violation, you also have people like Jamie Horowitz who are in WWE who have lost previous jobs in entertainment due to what could be described as HR violations. So I do think it's relevant to point out that there are multiple executives within this company that have been fired um, or terminated or retired because they thought they were too old, um, only to come back six months later because of HR violations. Um, and I think this is something that I would hope that someone would ask Triple H about next time he's in front of the media. Yeah, uh, for background, Jamie Horowitz is now the executive vice president of development and digital for WWE. Um, he was fired from Fox Sports in 2017. Uh, amid sexual harassment uh, allegations, mm-hmm. he he was a pretty big figure in in sports media. I think before that he was he developed I want to say first take with ESPN, 
and kind of played a pivotal role in, in shifting how ESPN presents like on-air talent and the shows that they would kind of produce. So he, he's a really big, he was a really big um, guy when it came to sports television production um, before he was fired. And he's been with WWE, I think for like a year or two now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll, we'll go on to another story. The um, AW announced the big announcement on Wednesday, another big announcement. Uh, from Tony Khan, that there's going to be a new unscripted series, which is code for reality show. AW All Access is going to be a a unscripted show. We don't know the time slot. I assume it's going to start airing whenever Slap Fight, I mean Power Slap, uh, and ends up wrapping up uh, Wednesday night on TBS at 10, I would expect. Don't know that for sure. Um, but there was a press release that came out. Uh, on Wednesday night that said that, uh, what does it say exactly here from, from Jason Sarlanis, who is the president of Turner Networks, ID and HLN. He says, quote, AEW has such an amazingly loyal and dedicated fan base that brings in more than 4 million viewers to TBS every Wednesday night, which was a surprise to many people who know that AEW Averages around 900,000, sometimes gets as high as a million. It was over a million this past Wednesday, uh, averaged minute by minute. Um, so uh, we asked Warner Brothers Discovery about the comment from executive Jason Sarlanis. Uh, how, how, how is that calculated? How did we get to 4 million viewers knowing that you know, the viewership that we get reported from Showbiz Daily and from Russellnomics is 1 million at best? Um, and they they told us that it actually that that number is a one minute unique viewer count, not just from ten, to, not just from eight to ten when Dynamite airs, but from seven all the way to midnight. So we're talking about the one hour before min before Dynamite on Wednesday, and then the two hours after, counting up the number of unique viewers throughout that entire duration. Um, so that's well different from from the, the usual calculation that we get about viewership um and we so we do yes, i heard yes i heard that they were uh they someone said that they were using mick math to determine to come someone up with that four million that. number someone were they counting that. all of like the backstage personnel and the ushers and the ticket takers in that ushers and ticket takers and hot dog and sellers things, and things yeah. of that nature yes um other many of those people were in the silver dome that day um they did give me a comment saying that we, we attribute most of that success to AW Dynamite. Right. Well, like within the context of how they use that information, right? This is a press release talking about a new show that is coming to, you know, TBS's Wednesday night block of programming. So they used a figure from what they get for viewers during Wednesday night's block of programming, which is more than just Dynamite. It's, you know, Obviously, someone watching The Big Bang Theory at 7 p.m. and then turning it off at 7.30 is not a dynamite viewer. But the context here and the way they used it, like it's it's a press release, so it's got some numbers to fluff it up. But I wasn't like confused by this the way other people were. I just assumed like, okay, like they're, they're, they're adding a new show on Wednesday night and this is how many viewers they have for Wednesday night programming. It's, it didn't say it's how many viewers they have for dynamite specifically. We know what that number is. Right. Um. Certainly in, in, in the world of Twitter and, and ratings discourse, something like this sends some people in, in, into, into some, you know, into some 
paranoid reactions about, you know, is this is this a, a big exaggeration of, of you're trying to tell us that the, the number is actually four times what we know it is. Um, I think I think there's an interesting way to, to, to look at this that, that may will actually be informative. And we have a chart that we're going to talk about in a moment. Um, but I think it, it's it's it sounds like somebody said, give me the num- biggest number you can find. And, you know, we'll we'll, we'll reference that. Um, it reminds me of, of a time, I think when Jesse, when you were uh, requesting media access, uh, at an event and I, and I gave you like some, some numbers to, 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 to tell the people how, how big our reach was. And I gave you like, you know, the, the Twitter accounts get 4 million impressions per month. And it's like, what, uh, that, that's the biggest number that I can give you. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I was, I was applying for one, uh, a few months ago, um, and they wanted to know how much, how many uh, like views per month our news coverage gets. And what I was kind of told to do was just find like the biggest number you could credibly link back to yourself. And so I don't really, I don't really work for, I work for USA Today's network. I don't really work for the USA Today publication, but I went to USA Network and I just looked at what the biggest number we have for USA Network page views is, which is an enormous number. It's like, 250 million page views per week or some, some crazy loony big number or something like that. I was like, yep, that's how many we get. Mm-hmm. So, so I think everyone does that. I mean, it's like I said, this is a press release. This is a good media. This is also like a good media literacy test. Like this is a press release coming from a network. They are going to use the biggest number that they can try to twist and credibly bring back to themselves to, to, to talk about how successful they are. We don't need to, when you read something like that, you need to have that understanding that this is where it's coming from. It's a press release from a, written by someone whose professional job it is to make the company look as good as possible. Yeah. Do, do you think this? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go. Well, I was just going to ask. Do you think this is a good sign for AEW? The fact that Warner Brothers Discovery likes bragging about them that they'll probably bid very well in the TV rights. I, I think more so the fact that they're doing this show, All Access, is is more meaningful than, than the words, right? That this is an action, a new, a new show that we're going to give you. It's one hour. I don't know how many episodes it will be, uh, roads to the top, which this seems like a replacement for that first season. I think it was only like six episodes or so. So I would, I don't, I don't know if it's going to be any longer than that. Um, but that's an action. That's a real investment of, of TV time and, and maybe other expenses that are, that are involved. Yeah. I mean, I think, I feel like, I feel like Warner Brothers discovery would love to have, aw dynamite on its on its network for as long as as they can see in the future i think that's pretty clear the the whole thing about like the the bidding and stuff like that's going to come down to how how many other parties are interested in it and does that impact the price if one of our discovery is the only real major cable network interested in you know dynamite and rampage and whatever else tony is wants to, to package into that um then 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 the number is not going to be probably as high as it would be if there's four or five other people or even two or three other parties that are interested in making big bits. But I think it does, you know, for, for whatever baseless criticisms out there that Warner Brothers Discovery is, uh, doesn't like AEW Dynamite and is looking to shed itself from, you know, potentially isn't interested in renewing. I think that's obviously this is obvious evidence that they're interested in. Uh, I wanted to talk about like the show itself a little bit. Um, we didn't get a trailer for it, which is kind of interesting because it's debuting in, in a couple of weeks. Um, but to my knowledge, there's we haven't really seen any actual content from this show yet. Not that I know of, no. And so 
Um, I really wonder what it is going to do. Um, to me, this is all like, this is all, all this stuff is, 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 you know, okay. Is it roads to the top? Is it, is it total divas or something like that? This all seems like, like drive to survive for me, which is formula one racing got a huge increase in popularity in the United States. Most people credit it to the success of a Netflix docu-series that just follows around the drivers and some of the key personnel and a lot, you know, throughout the course of a, of an F1 season. I, I've never watched the show before, but it seemed to be pretty popular on Netflix. And we, we noticed that it had a very strong uh, impact on increasing, you know, viewership, particularly 18 to 49 viewership for F1 races in the United States. Um, we can see here on, on the screen for watching on YouTube, we're just looking at Google Trends. You can see this pretty decisive increase in web search, at least, surrounding Formula One beginning around mid-2021, which I imagine is when Drive to Survive began to air. And it led to a, a really big increase in its TV rights fees, uh, yeah. TV rights fees which I'm sure every, that's what AW is interested in. So, And you've seen other – basically every other – you know. I haven't, I haven't really seen any of the major sports leagues like the NFL or the NBA. Or the, the NFL NBA. is doing it. Uh, so they, they mic'd up, I guess, Patrick Mahomes, Kirk Cousins, and Marcus Mariota all season long. And they're doing a Netflix docuseries that they're going to put out uh, about that. Oh, so there you go. NFL's doing it. And the PGA Tour just released it. It's been on Netflix. So Yeah, yeah PGA Tour has done it. Um, NASCAR has, has dabbled it during certain things. And, and this is something that I think – the idea is to take your personalities and the re- real people behind these characters and present them to the public in a way that might get new people invested in the show that otherwise weren't watching. Um, and so I don't, I think it would almost be better if this show was on not after Dynamite. It's probably better for the ratings in general that it's co- it's going to have Dynamite as a lead in because you're obviously getting people who are already invested in AEW to tune in. But as far as like making new fans, it would almost be a more interesting show to put on some other night of the week in a time slot where people might stumble across it that don't know that much about AEW. Yeah, but I mean, Adam, the goal, Adam Cole was on WWE TV, but it was mostly the NXT. I feel like if you're going in that, you need somebody like Sting or Mark Henry, somebody that the common wrestling audience is you know familiar with. Jericho. You're saying Adam, he, he, Adam, Adam Cole's not a big enough star for Chris Gull is what he's saying. That's what he's saying here. No, no, uh, Gull is making a good point <laughs> in the sense. And and they very well, I know I don't know if they were mentioned, but they very well could have Sting would, I think, be a pretty compelling figure to put on a show like this. I don't know if he's interested in doing that, but th- there's nothing stopping them from from making him and, you know, his the last year of his career or whatever a, a key point of, of the show. And you, definitely, you know what would be great is Discovery – is is the owner of HGTV, right? What if you had a reality show following Real Estate Steve, and and just following his his business, his real estate business, and w- watching Sting sell some houses? I think that would be compelling television. Listen, Little John remodels people's basements on HGTV, so it could definitely work. Can uh, can we get Orange Cassidy's life as an architect as well? Yes. Um. um. But but anyway, th- this um this comment in the in the press release about four million viewers when we know that aw does like nine hundred thousand or a million it, re- it reminds me of some some discussions i've had with people over the last i don't know 
you're you're so including one, one conversation I had with my mother where I was trying to explain to her that like well some sometimes people think I'm I'm, I'm biased in, in my reporting and and she's like well it's just numbers you're just reporting numbers like how can that how can that how can you're just reporting what the facts are um and this is an this is maybe a kind of extreme example here in this press release with this comment but you you still you decide how to measure it and even something like a nielsen rating is is not there's there are multiple ways to measure a nielsen rating and the 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 numbers that we talk about and that shows daily reports and that we report is a minute by minute average so it's a 120 minute show and Every minute has a value of the number of viewers who are watching during that minute. You just average them up together and you get, for example, 1,028,000, which is the number that we got on Wednesday for Dynamite. Um, and then there's this scope of, well, that number is really referring to is just live in same day. So anybody who watches it live while it's happening or on DVR before some cutoff time like 2 a.m., that's what live in same day means in that case. But what this number probably is is the unique number of viewers – not only eight to ten, but but seven to midnight, and probably not live same day. Probably live plus seven. So anybody who watches within seven days. Um, so I just thought it was a, a a a a good example of how we do have to make a lot of decisions here about how to present this data and how to present it in a way that hopefully is informative and and fair. Um, right. Anyone that's followed politics understands that. <clears throat> You can have the same figure and you can represent that figure in various different ways depending on what your political allegiance is and who you're trying to make look good or who you're trying to make look bad. Um, yes. So it's definitely not all, you know, oh, these are the hard data. This is the hard facts. You can't dispute them. Um, that's a key component of, of what we do here, WrestleNomics, but also what everyone in media is trying to do all the time. But I do think there, there's there's at least one – insightful way to look at this data and what we're looking at here i just put a chart up on the screen for people watching on youtube is the number of people who watched at least one minute on a weekly average so this is not one minute this is year to date so from from january 1st to the present how many unique viewers these shows do on average for at least one minute so this is the question is how many people watch at least one minute of smackdown or raw or dynamite or nxt or rampage how many people watch at least one minute, not just live the same day, but live plus seven? So one minute is a, is a very low threshold. We would like to, I think it would be fairer to look at a higher minute threshold, maybe like six minutes, maybe like five minutes or something like that. But anyway, this is what we got. Um, this is Nielsen data. And this is on average year to date. How many people are at least turning the show on? This could include accidental viewership, but how many people are at least turning the show on? Um, and, and the answer is, for SmackDown, it's 6.8 million. For Raw, it's 4.8 million. I guess uh, SmackDown's really 6.9 million. I'm doing some mental rounding here. For Dynamite, it's 2.9 million. So it's almost 3 million. It's not 4 million, but it's almost 3 million. Um, for, for NXT, it's just about 2 million. And for Rampage, it's about a million and a quarter. So about 1.25 million for Rampage. And I think this gives you an idea of like, with probably some some embellishment because we have such a low threshold, but it's probably pretty close to the number of people who who could be watching the show, I guess. When, when, we talk about, when we talk about like how many wrestling fans there are, how many wrestling fans are capturable, 
um, it's, it's a, for each one of these programs, I would say it's a number lower than this because our, our threshold is so low. Um, but I think it's close to this, I guess. Maybe it gives me a, an idea, too, of how partial the viewership is. By that, I mean the extent to which viewers are not watching the entire show. We know SmackDown does two, you know, two, it looks like it did about 2.4 million viewers this past Friday, but it's averaging almost 7 million people tuning in for at least some of it. That's, I mean, that's almost a quarter. Well, it's like a third, something like something in the range of a third. Um, and I think most of these numbers are about a third. You, you have to multiply their minute by minute average by about three times to get this one minute unique viewer count. Um, and we did have, a, I don't have the, the chart here, but we did have a chart on our Thursday uh, podcast for subscribers showing the number of unique viewers who watched any WWE show. So, so we're ruling out people who watch both SmackDown and Raw. They, they only get counted once, right? And it's, and it's something like 10 million people watch any of these three WWE shows. And I believe it's something like three and a half or so million people who watch any of either of the, the WWE shows. I think it just gives you an idea of how big those potential audiences are. Realistically, like if you look at the differences between SmackDown, Raw, Dynamite, NXT, and Rampage using this figure, they seem, at least just eyeballing it, they seem pretty close to the differences they have under like the Nielsen data for what we see on the ratings when they come yeah. out the day I, after. I haven't done the math, but it seems pretty proportionate. SmackDown seems to be maybe have a larger gap between like SmackDown and Raw in total viewers than, than the normal total viewer number that we see. That's probably a symptom of SmackDown just being on broadcast television and um, – you know, people – SmackDown has things like people tuning in for local newscasts one minute before the local newscast takes off and they're watching – suddenly they're watching a minute of SmackDown. Um, so in in that regard, it but it does seem like as far as like we're talking about like credible data, if we wanted to report on this, you know, this was what we saw on 4 o'clock Eastern time the day after shows, it still seems to be like the gap would be about – the the gaps between the shows seem to be about the same. It doesn't seem like one show is secretly doing a, a, a lot more people watching one minute than, than another show is. It seems like they all are getting inflated uh, viewership totals. Um, like, so th- and this includes like people who DVR the show, right? Like this the plus live seven. plus seven. Plus seven. Yeah. And if you're DVRing a show, like you're like, we're 99% of people who are DVRing and have to have watched more than one minute. I would the think show. so. Yeah. Because why would you even open? Why would you even open it up if you're only going to watch a minute of it? Um, yeah. But yeah, that I mean, that's just generally my takeaway. I think the SmackDown number is obviously really big. Um, the Rampage number isn't seems kind of small, but that also kind of makes sense because of its time slot. It's much more likely to have people, you know, just wanting to watch Rampage as opposed to people flipping flipping through channels at ten o'clock on a Friday night or people. I don't know what the lead in for what, what's the lead in for Rampage normally. I don't know. Is it a movie? Uh, I'll be looked that up on the TNT schedule. Uh, I feel like it's it's probably a movie, right? It's usually right? a movie. Because I think yeah. isn't like Tony Khan often tweeting about whatever movie is on and get ready for Rampage. Well, it used to do that before they switched to – it used to be The Accountant. The Accountant was on like half of the time before Dynamite. Yes. Um, but, but like it also goes to show like, you know, from my experience, like this Friday, I definitely watch Godzilla versus Kong at 730 before Rampage. Yeah. I definitely watch, you know, the 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 final two minutes of a lot of Big Bang Theory episodes because I'm popping it on before yes. Dynamite starts. I've seen a lot of uh, a lot of sitcom resolutions um, for for Sheldon Cooper and Friends 
uh, without watching the plot of any of the other, the, the episode beforehand. So yeah. I'm definitely counting in the, the one minute viewer uh, skew for Big Bang Theory reruns. And by the way, this is all US, of course. So does this give us an idea of like how many wrestling fans there are? Again, one minute is not the ideal threshold here. I think you can't with the one minute. I think just especially for like a show like SmackDown, which is going to have so much stuff on before and after mm-hmm. SmackDown that's going to get a lot of views. But can you knock it off, seems... let's say, you know, knock off 25% of this or some some sort of, uh, you know, you know, taper this this down a bit. But do we get some idea of like maybe there's 4 million wrestling, at least WWE fans, let's say, WWE susceptible wrestling fans. Maybe there's like 4 million of those. Maybe there's like a million and a half AEW susceptible fans. I mean, I'm 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 sort of assuming that we all have agreed upon uh, understanding or assumption about what what it means to be a wrestling fan. Uh, but like, it gives you an idea of, and this is linear, of course. So we got the problem of of not accounting for people who don't don't tend to, to use linear TV. But this is a deeper look into it than just looking at straightforward minute by minute viewership. What I think. I mean, I think it's possible. I mean, we, we talk about that sometimes when, especially, um, this is more the case at WWE because they're more likely to, to do a show like this. But for certain special shows that WWE does, like the Raw 1000 show or the SmackDown debut on Fox or something like that, mm-hmm. we use that number as like, okay, here is the number of, like Raw 1000 is a good one because that did a monster rating. I think, what that do? Like a point. 70 on uh 1849 right that was that 2012 oh not raw 1000 you're talking about raw, raw 30. 30 yeah i'm talking about raw 30 I'll look it up raw 1000 is probably another good example of it but raw 30 is much more recent yeah raw 30 which was january 23rd if i'm looking at the right number did did 2.34 million viewers and what did it do in 1849 18 uh, 908 000 viewers at 0.70 in the demo yeah so it did this huge demo number. That, to me, is like more of a sign of like, okay, this is what Raw maybe could potentially do if it took all of its potential weekly viewers and got them to watch, for the most part. I think the one-minute data thing, there's just too much noise with, with that. Um, and obviously, if you move the threshold up, is that is that your potential audience? For sure. But if you never get that potential audience for a substantial period of time, like to use SmackDown right here, 6.8 million viewers that they've never been able to get any number, even close to that on SmackDown on Fox, even the debut, even the show right after football wasn't even close to that number. So so the debut on Fox, October 4th, granted this is 2019. So this is Mm -hmm. several years ago, a few years ago, 3 million, 888,000. So 3.888 million viewers. It did a, Get ready for this. Did a, did a 1.37 in the demo. It did 1.8 million viewers in the demo. A 1.37. So that, that's like double what, what Raw 30 did mm-hmm. in the demo. And that was with The Rock, and that was the bit after a huge media push for, for yeah. debating SmackDown on Fox. And um, but but they they but even that number is isn't even close to what this right. P2 is. And I'm sure the P2 in 2019. This this figure right here, this P two weekly unique reach, one minute in two thousand and nineteen was was way higher than six point eight million, mm-hmm. probably right. I would think um, yes. But since then, we're never really getting close to that with with any measure we use to to what I would describe as like realistic 
actual viewership as opposed to someone watching one minute, it's probably infeasible to think that that number is like an attainable audience that SmackDown could have for two hours, um, barring a huge, huge increase in, in, in popularity in general. Yes. Um, so just a, a, a quick plug for the WrestleNomics Patreon at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. This is where I had a, a report um, on, on WrestleNomics.com actually viewable for everybody. Um, but behind the paywall, there is my weekly TV ratings reports for all of the shows, all the WEAW shows, as well as Impact New Japan. It's where the wow ratings are coming from. The MLW, episode three of MLW, um, as well as the WrestleNomics 30 episode that Gullo and I did on Thursday afternoon. You get access to the big viewership spreadsheet that I was just referencing uh, to find the, the SmackDown and the Raw number there, as well as the slides to this podcast. Um, but, uh, and by the way, if you do have a question or comment, you can put, that, put a super chat in if you're watching live on YouTube. But uh, we, will, we will now go to our to our main event topic here um is how successful is the wwe performance center and to try to answer this i know we have many intuitions about this which we will touch on but to try to answer this in some sort of subjective way or some sort of objective way i want to look at first of all i want to consider well when did the WWE performance center open it opened on july 11th 2013 I think uh, Rick Scott was there when he was governor of Florida and they opened up the performance center in, in Orlando. And as, as a stand in, I guess, for success, how much is WB actually putting this talent to use who they've developed through the performance center? I want to look at a period after that date. And I want to look at how many wrestlers have actually had pay-per-view slash premium live event matches and and did they get their training the the majority of their training or all of their training from the performance center or did they come into wwe with experience from outside of the WWE world um so i what i did was i broke down these wrestlers who who came in after july 20 uh 2013 um and i i did this based on cage match data it's not easy to – what we, what we could do is go through all those photos and say who's this and, and track all of those people. But what I did was I used cage match data basically to qualify people as did you have 10 matches in WWE? If you had 10 matches in WWE, we're including you. So what doesn't get included here, to be, to be clear, are people who just who, – who may have been signed by WWE, were trained in the performance center, and just never had a match before they were cut or something like that. I'm not accounting for those people here. So that is one potential weakness of, of this analysis we're about to go through. But anyway, I broke talent. Yeah. Well, and Cage Match also is unlikely to have a lot of people's early career data. I, yeah, I, th- I think that's more minor because because of the of, of the the distinctions I'm about to explain here. So I, I counted you as a pure PC project if you had anywhere between zero and nineteen non WWE matches before your first main roster PLE match. I counted you as let's we this, this this language may be problematic, but I but I counted you as an outsider. If you had greater than or equal to one hundred non WB matches before your first PLE. And I and then there's this middle category, which we'll get into, which may be debatable. And I counted you as as, as mixed if you had between twenty and one hundred non WB matches before your first PLE. 
Are you counting the NXT like takeovers and stuff as PLEs? No. no, main roster only. Just main roster. Okay. Main roster only. Well, but even like like my point with Cage Match is like in, in Cage Match will be the first to admit this that like someone who's just starting out like their first like their first match is 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 kind of depending on where it is, but most likely it's at a small indie show mm-hmm. is is not necessarily going to be calculated on Cage Match because it might be on an indie that isn't in Cage Match's database. It might they might be using a name that isn't connected with them later in their career. Um, I think wrestlers will admit. I, mean, I don't know, Brandon, if your cage match is a testament to this. That there's not all of their matches are not on cage match. I noticed that cage matches, if the promotion doesn't put results out anywhere, then usually they're they're not on cage match. So at least even if the promotion's small, if they put something on their Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, it gets on cage match. Right. Yes, and it's, it's and we've we've talked to the director of Cage Match before on this pro- program, and he said, you know, a lot of it is vo- it's all volunteer based, and it's a lot of it is people sending them results, um, people re- finding results online and putting it into the system themselves. Um, so I think I think it's an important qualifier to at least put in place when it comes to. But my point is maybe like, some that that affects wrestlers, cons- if not consistently, then randomly. Right. It's not as if this this is affecting a particular population within the within the wrestlers that we're looking at more so than others. Probably the mixed figure or the pure figure, if they've only wrestled, if the cage match only has them for 10 matches outside of W before WWE, I would wager that they probably did have more than 10 matches at some point. It was just at a very early stage in their career, perhaps in a small promotion that wasn't recognized by cage match, perhaps by a different name. And there's. They haven't connected the the current WWE performer to what they were originally debuted as. Um, I think Cage Match, you know, Cage Match doesn't even put profiles up until you hit a certain number of matches. Yeah. Um, I, I like like I I can't go through each case and point out like oh this person actually had more matches because I can I know this for a fact. But I think it's just something to keep in mind that the Cage Match data online is incomplete. Yes. It's a, it's an arbitrary qualifier. Like I guess I could lower the number. Yeah, and I don't want to like the general sense of your exercise is totally valid, right? What we're looking at here, which is we're looking at people who had just no we know for a fact had no experience outside of WWE. We mm-hmm. know people that maybe had a very short stint working independence outside of WWE, mm-hmm. and then we know people who had very long established careers before working WWE. Those people we can pretty much all point out. Okay. Well, well here, here are the people that we're talking about in, in their respective categories. So this, what we're looking at now are a bunch of tables in the three categories, pure, mixed, and outsider. And we're looking at every, everybody that had at least four PLE matches. So what we have here, uh, these are, are sorted by who had the most PLE matches. And in the pure category, the leader is Charlotte Flair, who had no matches outside the WWE system ever to this day, I believe. Braun Strowman, certainly before. He did not have any before before he was released for a time. He did not have any non W matches. Baron Corbin, Alexa Bliss, Miro, who is debatable. He had a few, but he had by my measure here in the cage match and complete data less than twenty. Carmella, Lana, Nia Jax, Liv Morgan, Bianca Belair, Ronda Rousey, Omos, Dana Dana Brooke, Montez Ford. The list goes on. The mixed category where there will be the most ambigu- ambiguity. Number one is is Becky Lynch. Who had a, a you know a longer career in her initial run before she took a break from wrestling? Bailey is counted as in in, in the category in between mixed. Mercedes Monet. We're using modern cage match 
what I call default names here rather than their, their true WWE names, Sasha Banks, uh, Eric Redbeard, who was, God, what's Eric, Eric, Eric Rowan. Uh, Rhea Ripley is counted as in between because she had less than 100 cage match matches, but more than 20. Uh, and that's true for all these people in the mixed category. Um, Shayna Baszler, Elias, Chad Gable, Buddy Matthews, Breezes is Tyler Breeze, Peyton Royce, Dax Harwood, his partner, uh, FTR Hare, is, is, does make it over the threshold into the outsider category. Anyway, the list goes on. Um, and then in the outsider category, the leader there for the most PLE matches is AJ Styles, followed by Kevin Owens, Xavier Woods, Sami Zayn, Asuka, Brody Lee, Finn Balor, Shinsuke Nakamura, Samoa Joe, Carl Anderson, the list goes on. Did AJ Styles have a prominent career before he came to WWE? Because JBL said he was a rookie. I've heard he's he's done, he he, uh, he might have done amateur wrestling, I think. Oh, okay. That, make, that, that makes a little more sense. But yeah. JBL told me he was a rookie when he was, you know, first yeah. made his WWE debut. The, the, so the, I assumed he hadn't had any real experience. The Red Hot, it was, didn't they, have, they had like some sort of The adjective. Redneck Rookie. <laughs> it was a very bad nickname. That's right. Then he then he tried to like brand him as the pit bull or something like that. JBL is just the absolute worst. I know he's the voice of Vince, but he was he, between that and him always referring to Daniel Bryan as a farm animal, were like just a totally egregious moments of commentary. Okay. Um. So what I got here is I've got 317 wrestlers who meet this criteria. They, they've had at least. They had their first WWE match after the Performance Center opened on July 11, 2013. So they had. Their first match after the PC opened, right? We're not we're not dealing with Roman Reigns here, right? Who had his first W match before the PC opened? He was on the main roster before the PC opened, so we're not we're not talking about Seth Rollins and Roman Reigns and and people of that generation. Um, these are people who had at least ten matches, which is a stand-in for you were under W contract. It will not be true, perhaps in one hundred percent of the cases, because I don't have great you know I don't have a great database of contract dates and things like that. Um, but you had at least 10 W matches and that's meant to exclude people who, you know, people who had, you know, enhancement matches, they had one-offs. This will exclude celebrity guest appearances like Pat McAfee, things like that. And you had your first WTV PV win more than nine months ago, um, which is meant to not meant to prevent us from evaluating people who are very new to the system as, as of this day, right? If you were just signed by WWE, Three months ago, probably not fair yet to evaluate whether or not you've been to a PLE match because you just haven't had a lot of time to develop in the system. So what we get here are some non-intuitive results, I think, among probably people listening in that it's, it looks very even. These three categories perform very evenly in terms of I've got so I've broken it down to, into three different results. So I asked how many of these wrestlers across the three categories how many of these wrestlers have had no PLE matches to this day? How many have had between one and four? And how many have had more than five? And whether whether you are whether you came to W with lots of experience and you're called an outsider, whether you're called pure or whether you're called a mixed, um, the outsiders do do have the lowest percentage of no matches on a PLE. Um, and the, the pure and mixed are pretty similar. So ba- basically what we've got is 23% of the outsider category have had more than five. But also 24% of the pure category have had more than five PLE matches. The mixed have had 23%. Um, the outsider category d- does do better here in, in the category of who's had more than 
one who's had more than zero, but, but, you know, not more than five, one to four. Um, they are the most populous category, the outsider category. It's 176 wrestlers. Um, 55% of them have never made it to a PLE match. But you look at the pure PC projects, there's 98 of those. Now, this is only people who actually had matches, not including the people who may have been signed and never had matches or had very, very few. There's 98 of those. 63% of them never made it to a PLE, main roster PLE. 12% of them had one to four PLE matches, and 24% of them had more than five. And the mixed is is right on par with what the pure level does. So I, what, what my, my takeaway from this is I can't say here, at least in this analysis, maybe I could torture this data more and, and get a more intuitive answer for, for what, what I assume is the majority of our listeners' uh, intuition that, and I'm going to make an argument here that I'm kind of agreeing with that intuition, but, but that I can't make an argument here that, hey, look, signing all these people up who don't have wrestling experience doesn't lead to great results. I can't say that based on this data. I can't say objectively, look, even in your own usage of this talent, you're not getting them to, to, the, to the biggest events in your company. You are. You're getting them there um, nearly as efficiently as you're getting people who come to your company with wrestling experience. You are recruiting, at least over the course of this time course from 2013 forward, you are recruiting disproportionately people who have wrestling experience already. Is this believable? Yeah, I mean, there's it's you. You can't dispute the, the data that they have. I mean, would you expect that the the talent that gets called up to the main roster, which is kind of like a um, and I can't dismiss self fulfilling prophecy here. If there's right, if there's a motivation right, to validate this recruitment philosophy in, in into the 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 content of your show, I can't rule that out. Yeah, well, to me, it's if you go back to the. Um, what we're looking at here is um, with with these numbers, like, okay, not even like a self-fulfilling prophecy, but just in the sense of like, if, you know, you're looking at NXT, all these people you have down at NXT or these people working at the Performance Center and they get selected to get called up. Genuinely speaking, you would think they would get called up because there's some sort of plan for them. And if there's some sort of plan for them, they're going to appear on a, a PLE in some form. Maybe it's only for one match, but it usually it's for a couple if you have a plan for them, um, the outsiders, they have less invested in, in the sense of they haven't been paying this person for years and years to be training and they haven't paid to educate them in wrestling. So there's less of an investment there. So there's probably less focus in there. There's also, if you look at the list of talents that we have here without getting into a conversation about star power, which I'm sure is going to be coming, the people who are, you know, pure or mixed, but especially like the pure WWE performance center recruits probably look a certain way relative to the way that the outsiders look. And those are people that are, I I bet, I bet, right. You know, what would be interesting is, is to see, is to gather up the average heights of, of, of the pure (laughs) and compare them to the average heights. I mean, just Charlotte Flair alone is probably taller than AJ Styles, right? Yeah. Well, we'll just, but just look at like, let's look at the top five here. Yes. So, so Charlotte, Charlotte Flair, Braun Strowman, yes. Baron Corbin, Alexa Bliss, and Miro all have in different ways like Vince archetype looks for who he wants to put on television, mm-hmm. right? If you look at the top five on the other end, AJ Styles, Kevin Owens, Xavier Woods, Sami Zayn, and Asuka, all of those guys don't. All the, all the men are too small or too short. Um, 
and Asuka isn't a, a former fitness model to mm-hmm. my knowledge, uh, with implants. Um, and so like that, that kind of, if you look at this, like knowing who Vince likes and who Vince wants to put on television, this is how he's getting them is, is because the Indies aren't producing those people or other non WWE entities aren't producing that kind of talent, the kind of talent Vince McMahon wants to look at on television. WWE's had to create those, the talent himself. And you can pretty much look down this entire list of, of pure WWE wrestlers with a few exceptions here or there. It's a lot of on the men's side, former college football players or former college athletes, uh, bodybuilders or some, or some, uh, in that regard. Um, and there's one man the, defying expectations as usual, Dominic Mysterio. Dominic Mysterio continues to, to, um, continues to stand out in that regard. Well, the, you know, there's a few, there's like, there's like real one Enzo yes. on here, which I wouldn't say is like a typical Vince looking guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course he was paired with big bill who absolutely was. Yes. And we do get Logan Paul here who I, would definitely classify as a celebrity, but he's had five PLE matches at this point somehow. Um, and I'm sure more to come. Um, so as a stand in for star power, we'll, we'll look at Google trends. Right. And so maybe you would say, well, the pure, maybe, maybe the pure PC projects, they get to PLEs almost as, as, as efficiently as, as, you know, as likely as outside wrestlers, but but maybe the bigger stars end up still being the people with it, with real wrestling experience, and we'll see if that's true. And so what I've got here is the, the top. So I figured the, the fairest way to do this was, if we're going to look at Google Trends, was to look at, let's look at all these wrestlers, and let's look at their Google Trends, and let's take the year that they had the highest Google Trends average and let's so let's look at it that way and then rank them that way. And the first one won't be particularly fair, but I bet it but she's still number 1 overall anyway is is Ronda Rousey whose highest year for Google Trends was 2015 before she was ever in WWE. This was her biggest UFC year where she was a a really major mainstream personality. Um she's probably still above AJ Styles at number 2 even in her WWE days, I would think. Um but AJ Styles is number 2. When AJ Styles came to WWE in 2016, he was he immediately became you know in, in, in the Google Trends measurement became a, a pretty big getter of web searches. We could say a really impressive performance by a rookie too. Yes, his rookie year 2016. And I think par- part of it with AJ Styles is also he he had a surprise debut at the Royal Rumble where a lot of people are watching and they made a really big deal about it at the Royal Rumble. And so uh, although they didn't film it correctly. Um, so I think that that probably helped boost up his Google trend number, and, and right? He won that the title people, in his first year, I believe, right? Oh yeah, he had an amazing year that whole year, and he was there the whole year, which which, which probably helped he too. Got there, but right I think the like the year, yeah, yeah. It starts out with uh, with you know making this big, huge debut during a, an event where a lot of people who maybe don't normally watch WWE are watching it because it's the Royal Rumble, and they see this person who just comes out and everyone makes a big deal about them. That that would leave, if I didn't know who AJ Styles was. I would lead to certainly lead to me looking him up to, to find out more. Well, I just think the nature of his debut. He was coming off a pretty hot run too from New Japan, and the Bullet Club at this point was a very you know popular stable, and I think like that kind of helped too when you bring an outsider, you put him straight to the main roster. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he has AJ Styles' debut in WWE is one of the best debuts of 
the last 10 years, probably like as far as like as a moment of someone showing up. Um, Is he the last uh, non WWE, like other than like Logan Paul to go right to the main roster? Like, like I guess Ronda Rousey. Yeah. So, um, uh, there's, I feel like there's been some, I mean, um, Braun Strowman basically was not on. Never, I don't believe was ever on NXT. There've been Strowman was, yeah, Strowman was never on. Strowman was never on television. Was almost but as an outside NXT te- television before he went to the main roster. Yeah, I'm trying to think, think as an outside signing. I'm trying to think of people with like what? experience and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like Co- Cody. I mean Co- Cody in a way, but he was WWE before uh, so. Right. Yeah. Um, it, 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 I, I bring this conversation some. up because if Jay White does get signed by WWE, it'll be interesting to see what they do with it. I'm sure if if Jay White goes to WWE, I think they'll put him right right on the main roster. I think he's got to spend some time like knowing where the hard cam is personally, yeah, maybe working on a hip toss or two. Um, I, my my takeaway here, and then there are, there are additional exceptions here, like Katana Chance, whose highest Google Trends number is in 2014. I assume when she was on the Ninja Warrior. Um, so there's some 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 anomalies here, right? From from non wrestling activities. Well. Well, this list clearly, like, I think, over skewers towards women relative to star power. Yes. Um, but my, my takeaway here is it's not – it doesn't tell me a, a story that says hey, people from the outside do much better than people f- who have no experience when they come in. Um, Adam, Adam Berger um, for Voice of Wrestling did a very similar analysis and study, and he wrote it in an article that came out last year, where he looks at kind of breaks it down kind of similarly to the way you do, Brandon, between the the outsider, pure and mixed, um, and he and he also looks at like pay per view PL or I guess PLE now main events and, and title wins. The terminology, yes, is uh, and he kind of looks at that and seeing like who okay who is actually getting pushed because I think from a new from a number standpoint there are plenty of people that return to the performance center that are soaking up spots on the main roster in some form. Yeah, um, counting up the days that one held a title was something else that came to mind, but I you know it would have been more complicated. That, and that's also arbitrary. It's like okay, so like WWE decided to push someone yes, for that's, a little that, bit. That's not immune them, from self fulfilling prophecy. And, and gave not them a mid card title. Yeah, right. You could argue that that is that is significantly less impactful that like Vince McMahon decided to let this person be intercontinental champion for a hundred days and a completely meaningless run is, is less relevant than like the Google trends number. Um, I think this data skews is skewing the influence of women to way too much in the sense that like Lana is fifth, um, you know, well ahead of Kevin Owens, but who is a bigger star within wrestling terms? It's obviously Kevin Owens. Um, in the performance center, I think, if we're going to talk about success from the performance center, it's definitely the women's division has had a lot more success than I think the men's division when it comes to actually creating stars, especially if you factor in some of these people who are labeled as mixed, like, you know, Becky Lynch and Rhea Ripley and Bailey. And, and those are, you know, those are your biggest stars. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and Liv Morgan is up here too. And Alexa Bliss who have become, you know, they've definitely been used a lot on TV and featured. Um, Right, and I think when if you when you want to have a discussion about like what is the when we talk about okay the big question which is like is the performance center a success is the performance center successful at what it does and a lot of it's going to depend on what you consider to be a success and I think what WWE internally in a lot of ways considers success is maybe different than what like me or, or our hardcore fan would would determine as a success. I think they would look at someone like Omos and say that he's a big success. They, they signed him, you know, out of college with, with no wrestling experience. 
They trained trained him. They taught him how to wrestle. And now he's been on 17 pay-per-view events You know, since he debuted. He's going to wrestle Brock Lesnar at WrestleMania. Clearly, he's a huge success. Um, to me, as like as far as like I would look at it more of like it's almost like a real money drawing star is almost going to be like a major figure in WWE for 10 years. I would I would slide towards no in that if almost was not in the company with the company being any significantly worse shape than it is now, I would say no. Um, so I don't really know how much real value he's bringing to the table, but WWE's view on things is perfectly valid in the sense that if their goal is to find talents that has a certain look, train them, teach them the, the way of WWE, teach them how to look at the hard cam, and to get that person on television a lot and to fill out your roster with people, men and women that look like certain things and 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 understand the WWE way, then 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 it is certainly a success because look at the number of people that are that are that are on the roster that have come from that background. I think um, in the case of somebody like Almost, the w- one of the things that he brings to WWE is that he's he's from Nigeria and you get to have this star who's who's from a region that has a, a huge population and, and it's a, a region that you probably want to grow your, your fan base. Mm-hmm. And there's where else, I mean, on, on the Indies or in some other wrestling company, it's going to be very hard to find somebody who, ha- who has that origin. So I, I think that's, that's true. That's I mean, something. they have, they have Kofi Kingston who's from Ghana, but yes. Um, I mean, and, and like I was, when I was reading Cameron Hawkins article on the NIL deal, right. Um, he was, like I said, he was, this is on the ringer and he had this article where, you know, he went to a dinner with all these college athletes and they, they had, I think three WWE wrestlers that spoke. One was Bianca Belair, who's obviously a college athlete. One is, was Big E, who's not a performance center trainee. He predates that, but was also a college athlete signed by WWE. And the other one was Omos. And it's like, I don't think anyone would dispute that Big E and Bianca are good representations of the WWE Performance Center. It's almost really good representation because he's not a very good wrestler and is is very limited in what he can do. But you can probably have him at these kind of dinners and things. And you can see he has a certain type of physical presence, similar to what Paul White and Great Khali had in the sense that he certainly passes the airport test. Mm-hmm. Um and you can have them at public relation things like this and, and be able to relate to people in that way. But I think I'm just using him as an example, but you could point to other people on this list and be like, okay, you know, is Otis, is that, is that, is Otis really feel like he's um, like a success, a success from the performance center? Like to me as a wrestling fan, like I could take or leave over Otis. I don't, I don't need him on my television. I don't really, I think he has a very limited amount of appeal to, to, to exist as a drawing card, but he's someone WWE signed from scratch, trained him, taught him the way of WWE, and now he's been on a certain number of pay-per-view events. I think he's probably won. He won the tag titles, yeah. I think, before. Well, and, and um, he was hot at one point, too, doing that whole storyline. Yeah, he was part of a, at least a somewhat memorable angle with the Mandy Rose um, angle and things like that. To me, I'm like, I'm not looking at Otis as like a model of success if I'm the Performance Center, but... In WWE terms, he is successful. The big question I, I think I have about the Performance Center, and I think what most people have from Performance Center, is that, especially on the male side of the roster, they don't seem like they're capable of producing a real wrestler who understands how to connect with audiences in a really strong way to the point that they could be a main eventer. Um, 
And you look at people who are at the top of this list on the outsider category, people like AJ Styles, Kevin Owens, certainly Sami Zayn recently. It doesn't seem like the Performance Center is churning out people like that, despite the number of people that the Performance Center has trained over the last 10 years. And despite the fact that the Performance Center has trained a lot of the people that Vince McMahon thinks should connect with the audience in that way and has not. I guess if we look at this, the, the blue pure side, who are the most promising wrestlers here that could be main eventers here? I mean, I, I, at the top, we have Braun Strowman, and Braun Strowman has turned into into a, a fairly big star for them. Um, Baron Co- Corbin, I think, is a pretty con- contentious figure uh, in wrestling fandom, uh, whether, you think, whether you think he has value or not and how much. Um, but I guess Montez Ford is... is is somebody with the biggest upside that stands yeah. out here? Um, I, I mean, Montez Ford, I think, has a lot of potential. A lot of these guys on this list have a lot of potential. Um, when will WWE seize that potential is another question. That's more of booking as opposed to raw talents. Mm-hmm. But, yes. And and a lot of these people... And, and, and remember, we ruled out anybody who whose first match was not uh, more than nine months ago. So we don't have Braun Breaker on here, for example. Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't think. Um, but, but some people just aren't with the company anymore, I guess, which will, which will bring us to our, to our next point here, um, where I'm, I'm going to put on my, my cynical WD hat. And, like, is there a justification, like a defensive justification, why you don't want to invest too much in people who have wrestling experience? Because if you invest in people who have wrestling experience... Maybe you're just giving exposure to people who you're gonna you're gonna shine this incredibly incredibly powerful W spotlight on them, elevate them through your enormously powerful distribution platforms, and and then maybe they're gonna work for you for three years and then go somewhere else and and help your competitors. And to answer whether that's actually more the case for people who have wrestling experience before WWE than it is for people who don't. Um, I looked at the people from this group of wrestlers and, and asked, well, where are they now uh, among the people who are no longer with WWE? And in the pure category, we have 13 out of the 32. So 40, 41% are no longer with WWE from the pure projects. Eight of those 32 are actually wrestling elsewhere. And I guess there's so few of them, we'll just name them. And that is Miro. That is Big Bill, W. Morrissey. Colin Cassidy, uh, that is Enzo Amore, real one, who's with, with MLW. Uh, Miro is with AEW uh, when, when he is appearing on TV. Um, Aiden English uh, is with Impact as an announcer, right? Yeah. Um, Levi Cooper is apparently taking indie bookings, according to, to Cage Match. Um, and we have uh, AOP. Occam and Razor, who are taking at least some bookings, maybe. Have they? Re- I don't know if they've wrestled a match. They were though, definitely advertised they? for that that big UK show that never happened. Well, they were running it the the NF the NFT funded uh, big UK show, but I don't think they've actually had a match. Aren't there reports that they're maybe maybe going to come back to WWE? Um, so I I suppose d- definitely yeah. A uh, few of them are us, and we could we could you know we could adjust this and say, well, maybe, maybe AOP don't belong there, and that would bring us down to six of thirty-two, which would be you know substantially less than a quarter. And it's also, I mean, part of it also comes down to star power in the sense that like, uh, if you're still wrestling elsewhere, 
some of the people you can point to that like people like Miro, obviously, or people like even Bill Morrissey or Enzo, like they had legitimate kind of like star. They, they got legitimate cracks at being stars in WWE and, and got over to a degree. Um, you know, like Miro worked main events in WWE and stuff like that. Um, so they're obviously have, they can make more money outside of WWE because they have more star power and more credibility as opposed to some of these people whose options for, for if they want to work outside of WWE is probably not going to be super lucrative and it's probably not going to be in any form of glamorous venue as opposed to Miro who, you know, goes to AEW and works in a, in a, in a, in a, you know, a major professional wrestling organization. Let's mm-hmm. so look at the other categories and see how, how much those people are in, in other wrestling companies. And we've got 22 of the 54. So 41% are no longer with WWE. So still majority with WWE and 20 of them, 37% of them are wrestling elsewhere. Um, and some of them did wrestle elsewhere. Uh, but our, so I guess you know, Brody Lee, unfortunately, has passed away, but he was with AEW. Uh, but Samoa Joe, Soraya, um, Samurai Del Sol, the former Kalisto, Ruby Soho, uh, and the, the list goes on here. Right? So we don't need to name them all. But we do have a greater percentage, right, are wrestling elsewhere. Even, even if we accept this 25% for the pure projects, we've still got you know 37%. More of them are wrestling elsewhere. And in the mixed category, the percentage is actually... A little bit higher. Yeah, um, I expect for, for that too. Yeah, yeah. For only seventeen wrestlers, eight out of the seventeen are no longer with WWE, and seven of those are wrestling elsewhere: uh, Mercedes Monet, Eric Redbeard, Buddy Matthews, Tyler Breeze, Peyton Royce is not wrestling. She is the one who is with who is not with WWE, but is not wrestling elsewhere. And then we got Dax Harwood, uh, uh, Connor O'Brien, and is James Ellsworth, Ellsworth still taking bookings? Well, there he is. Um, so there's that. And, and Peyton Royce, did she worked Impact, right? Yes, yes, that's true. Yeah, right. This is like I, at this moment, so that's a good point. Yeah, and I think she did. She just have a baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So even then, that she could very well return to pro wrestling um, outside of that window. Yeah. So I guess, like, with the, with that in mind, maybe there's some defensive value. I guess there's some, right? Um, if you and that was definitely my perception of Vince's mentality was that he wanted to maybe for reasons beyond this wanted, wanted to bring in people who had a blank slate who could take their who could, whose whose credit peak could be credited to no one but wb no one but vince for creating them um and then maybe that there is some defensive value in that people who who you got from a blank slate and you created them from scratch they wouldn't have value they wouldn't have this pre-existing relationship or recognition outside of wb and maybe they wouldn't go elsewhere to help your potential competitors who you pretend don't exist um, yeah, I mean, Triple H told The Athletic, I think, in an article that came out last year talking about the Performance Center that they didn't necessarily like signing a bunch of indie talent because those people knew how to wrestle a different way and they had to teach those people. playbook. Right. They had, they had to, But they had to, uh, you know, yeah, they had to teach them. They had to make them unlearn some of their bad habits mm-hmm. they established and they could learn the proper WWE way. I mean, I mean, nobody likes signing. This, nobody likes signing indie talent more than Triple H. So I don't know how much he really believes that. But in the sense of I WWE mean, pivoting away from as indie focused, I mean, that's, that's something that, that he said had. over the years. I, I, I very memorably remember when he started doing the the media, the media calls. Him saying that mm-hmm. in 2014, really just before he started to sign a lot of lot more wrestlers with wrestling, wrestling experience, 
you know, it's, it's hard to teach people your new playbook. You know, we, we feel like we have this playbook. That's, that's the best playbook for us. And when you come to a new team, you gotta, gotta run our playbook. You can't run the playbook that you're used to wrestling. And sometimes you sign these people up who have this, who've been running the same playbook for eight, 10 years. And it's hard to teach them the new playbook. This is the man loves his football analogies. Is he a big football fan? I, he 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 He's uses it a lot when he fan? answers. He uses it a lot. Like he uses football coaching analogies a lot when it comes to I feel like answering questions like this. When he talks about playbooks and he talks about oh we've got a new assistant coach. We you know I'm the head coach. They're the play caller. Like. You'd think he's Jim Ross sometimes with his number of football. Well, it's the most popular sport in the United States, so he's just trying to, you know. I know he's supposedly a West Ham United fan. Um, I'm pretty sure it's because, yeah, but you have to. Their logo, Brandon, is a big sledgehammer. Oh wow! So two big sledgehammers actually. So I think that's why he probably chose them. So. I guess my, my question is so, and, and part, part, partly this whole thing was sprung on by, by like, I, I was asked uh, a while ago by uh, about how how can WWE improve, and and I was kind of like at a loss for 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 things that were obvious to me, and, and after thinking about it for like ten minutes, I guess talent development is a big question to me in WWE. Like where, and I think it's something we've talked about before on this podcast is that where who are the next big stars? For, for WWE, let's say in NXT. Um, is it Braun Breaker? Maybe. Is, is, are there others? There, there isn't a clear class of talent that I could see who are in NXT now who are going to be main eventers, uh, let's say, five years from now. Um, this might be hard to find the data, but it'd be interesting to find out like how many wrestlers they've signed since the Performance Center opened and how many have been released in that 10 years and, like, and see that comparison, like how many are, you know, so... Because they've released a lot of wrestlers. You want to do that? You should look that up. You want to look that up? Not, not yeah, right I mean, now, you'd have to go back and dig through a lot of like press releases and announcements of, of people that yeah, they yes. signed yeah. to deals. Because yeah. you would you would probably hear their name in a press release and then never hear about them ever again. Right. Um, if you look through the class pictures, I think that would be the thing to do. Yeah. But yeah, you can see like you, know, you get the press release and it's like, yeah, well, we signed you know so and so, a six foot four, three hundred and ten pound. You know, a guy who was last an offensive guard for Tulsa University football or something like that. And, and it's worth mentioning um, with the with the NIL program, Polovic did mention on the on the previous earnings call that some of those wrestlers are just about ready to make their TV debut. And to my knowledge, none of them yet have made their debut. And there's more than forty of them that they've signed. Uh, again, the I'm going to reference al- the- almost a year. It's it's just over a year old. I want to say that again. I, I should probably pull it up at this point, but the Cameron Hawkins article, I think he mentions that there are a couple people who recently debuted on NXT oh, okay. that are maybe NIL signings. Maybe on level up, probably. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm going to actually look that up now. Um, but I mean, do they count Gable Stevenson though? Because I know he's not wrestled, but has he's he had on, a match though? He hasn't a match. You know, he's been on yeah. TV, but has not a match yet. <laughs> but um. I think when it comes to like star power, I mean, I think a lot is being put on Braun Breaker at the moment because he's clearly like the one, the person in NXT that they're pushing as a main eventer. I think if you, if we're just looking at things right now in the moment, it's kind of a difficult time to assess because, you know, probably like what a year, eighteen months ago, WWE went through this huge overhaul of what NXT was and what they were going to look for, and they released a you know Triple H lost power, you know. Vince released a bunch of people that Triple H maybe had eyes on as becoming main event 
stars, most of them indie wrestlers or former wrestlers who had experience outside of WWE. So if you're looking at things now, like, okay, who are the stars of the future in WWE? It is hard to determine because you're basically looking at talent that has only been wrestling for maybe a year, maybe a little bit more, but maybe a little bit less as well. Um, and it's hard to say just if you have a bunch of talent that's only one year into their wrestling career um, and has had a limited number of television matches, do, it's hard to identify their real potential and hard to see them, you know, as a major, major star. Breaker's really the only one that I think they've made a real sincere effort at trying to push as a major star. And even he has a lot of question marks because, again, he's only wrestled for about a year now. So it's hard to, to look at things now and say, like, OK, who are going to be the stars in, in four or five years? They might be able to develop a lot of these new talents into, to, 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 you know, main event stars and they can replace not only Roman Reigns, but replace Seth Rollins, replace Kevin Owens, replace Cody, replace Sami Zayn, replace these other, you know, not just the, the very top guy, but also these credible main eventers that WWE has um, built up over the last you know, decade. And I don't know if the perform, you know, that we have 10 years of evidence of the performance center, especially on the male side of the roster, really not no one that's really been able to succeed at the level that say like a Seth Rollins has um, as a WWE star, but maybe just, you know, with less competition from experienced indie workers, which is a real thing in the sense that you were no longer, if you if you change your philosophy, like an NXT did, that, that you no longer uh, are competing with veterans who have, you know, 10 times more experience than you do if you're a performance center recruit. Uh, that makes a difference. I think that was a thing with like NXT. You would watch the NXT TakeOver shows and they were great, but there weren't developmental shows because there'd be like maybe one person on the show who was a performance center recruit. And everyone else was a, was, a, was a veteran wrestler by the time WWE signed them. And so I think it's kind of an awkward time for WWE right now when it comes to um, – picking out stars of the future and, and, and it's t- totally to their own doing. It's because they've been bad at doing it for the last five years, but because they had that reset about a year ago, it seems difficult to kind of assess where they're going to be in a few years when it comes to talent uh, that, that comes across as main event stars. Well, we have a new factor too, and that's AEW talent, right? Because young AEW talent that are getting TV time, they're going to be free agents eventually like a Ricky Starks an MJF, a Daniel Garcia, a Wardlow, now you're talking guys that are gonna that could possibly go from AEW to WWE as main eventers and push more performance center NXT guys out of the picture. Because I mean I assume WWE's gonna bid for some of these young talent when they become available and those talent are gonna want to go right to the main roster, I assume. And and, and Gull, I think you're starting to answer a question that I wanna yeah. want to state here is that is so number one, is this we've tried to evaluate the results of the WWE Performance Center which has existed for 10 years, is what they're doing the most efficient and effective way to develop marketable talent? And if not, what is? What would be a better way? I mean, obviously, you know, sign some of these AEW talent. And, you know, and now, you know, Ring of Honor is going to build more talent up. I mean, Impact and MLW have young stars, you know. Yeah. So I, I think if you look at how the NFL and the NBA and other major sports develop their talent they 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 don't cook them up in, a, in, a, in an nfl performance center they don't cook them up in, a, in an nba performance center they rely on college sports they rely on a a a a, a younger other organization called the ncaa uh to to provide their talent and they draft them from that and and 
sports are not a perfect analogy for pro wrestling because I think in a lot of ways pro wrestling ends up overlapping spaces between sports and non-sports forms of entertainment. Um, but I, and I think there's a compulsion from Vince's leadership, which hopefully will be further removed as time goes on, of having to control this this world that you're getting your talent from. Um, but the, the NFL somehow still survives despite the NCAA existing as an independent organization with the, which a bunch of other teams and, and they even make a lot of money doing it. Um, and, and, and same for other, other versions of, uh, uh, the NCAA basketball and, and things like that. Um, so I think, I think the NIL program is one way to recruit talent. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say, don't, you know, don't do that. But I think the way to do way to recruit talent is to, um, Sure, do the NIL thing, do tryouts with people who have no wrestling experience, but I think to recruit wrestlers as well from from other wrestling organizations. And maybe rather than do, uh, we have Triple H's here, global localization, which is a, a plan that he rolled out in 2018, and they, they've certainly given signals that they're interested in, in continuing to execute on that plan of putting NXT performance centers and NXT brands on different continents of the world. Um, which sounds like a very expensive strategy to me. Um, I, I would suggest rather than doing that, uh, do something you might call global subsidization, uh, where you don't acquire other wrestling companies, which, which is also something that they've talked about. Uh, Stephanie mentioned that at the, at the Wells Fargo uh, conference a few months ago. But where you don't spend uh, money on buying wrestling companies, you don't spend money on building new performance centers and staffing them, um, and and running NXT live events and and things like we think they're going to do with NXT Europe, where they've put NXT UK on on pause, or they they you know dismantled it, and they're going to supposedly relaunch NXT Europe maybe sometime later this year, which again sounds very expensive. Plus, it it brings the problem of you have this sort of centralized talent development leadership, which results in a homogenous wrestling philosophy that I don't think has been proven to be highly successful. And that I think over the course of wrestling history, the thing that has one of the factors that has helped develop a wide range of valuable wrestling talent is the fact that it did develop organically, whether that was through the territory system decades ago, whether that was through this sort of hybrid of independent slash international ecosystem that developed much of the talent over the last 10 years or so, which, which came at virtually no cost to WWE. Um, so I think the, the, the thing to do is rather than spending money on performance centers and NXT brands internationally would be to identify and subsidize, uh, partner with other wrestling companies that you don't control scary thought, but that you don't control and and help those companies exist and maybe even let your ta- and let your talent work there occasionally, sort of like send people on excursion, and have those wrestlers experience other experiences in other countries with other wrestlers, which has proven to make so many other wrestlers throughout the course of history better. I think. Well, so first, I just want to mention that according to this article by Cameron Hawkins, um, which has this is a quote directly from the recently fired James Kimball, but uh, Tank Ledger and. Oba Femi, who are both uh, recent NXT level up 
wrestlers were part of the first NIL class. So there are people that signed to NIL deals who have at least appeared on WWE programming uh, so far. Mm-hmm. But to get back to your point, Brandon, um, I've always thought that like the NIL in particular is like a marketing PR thing more than it is an actual talent development thing. I'm sure in WWE's mind, their idea is we're going to take this talent and we're going to make them big stars and we're going to train them. But I also think like the NIL is all, which technically through NIL, which is using new NCAA um, regulations that allow WWE to sponsor active NCAA athletes. That is a new thing. But in the articles, the NIL philosophy is always you know, these mainstream media articles that that write these uh, articles on WWE's NIL thing. It's always marketed almost as like this new thing. Like WWE is, they're looking at college athletes now and they're going to a college, you know, NCAA football player and saying, hey, you know, you're probably not going to make the NFL, but we think you might be a good fit in wrestling. Try try being a wrestler as if that's something that is, is new to pro wrestling as opposed to something that wrestling promotions have been doing for, for decades. Um I also think it goes to kind of what your point was, Brandon, which is it, it shows the, the the idea of the performance center and the idea of getting athletes from college and training them to wrestle. It also shows WWE investors that WWE has control over the future of its product. If you're relying constantly on the independents or AEW or New Japan Pro Wrestling to develop talent for you, then you don't have control over your product because you're relying on a third party to develop the stars that you are then going to rely on to, to, to drive business forward. If you really sell the idea that you are training all of these people yourself and that WWE is, you know, vertically integrated with it, with its entire talent development system and taking someone from, you know, rock former college athlete into WrestleMania main eventer, that's a way better sell to to people who who want to get on on the strength of your company than it is to say like yeah we, you know we pick up talent from all over the place and we, we're, we're relying on these independent promotions to to develop talent and then we, we take them and, and make them WWE stars it's way better from an investment perspective to show that WWE has control over the long-term stars it has it's how they've answered every single question during these investors calls um, over the last decade. When people ask about who's going to be the next John Cena, what's going to happen with the next star? And they always say, we've got the performance center. We've got plenty of stars coming. It takes time, but don't worry. They're coming. Um, I would say the results have been mixed, you know, over the last 10 years. But I do think the reason that sold a lot is is more based on the idea to show people that WWE has control and is WWE is being innovative when it comes to creating its own stars as opposed to relying on other others. And, um, and I should add, too, we should... Be, be up front here. I should have been up front at, at the beginning that I, I, I am an inactive independent wrestler who, who may have a, a bias and agenda here. But it, you know, it occurs to me, especially around the point you know, that, 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 Jesse, you were making that I don't disagree with, especially with the, the, the male talent. You don't have a lot of wrestlers who you train from scratch who have become excellent in-ring performers or even not that many who have become especially marketable talents, period. Um, and now it's been ten years, and if and and knowing no better, you would think that hey, W has all the resources in the world. They have all the money that you would need to run a great wrestling school. They have access to all this, all the all the staff and and trainers and coaches who you would want to help you run a great wrestling school. Yet, well, before, you know, before WWE, you know, it was a it was a 
a, a wrestling ring in someone's garage. And that was how people were trained. And now they have this big multi-million dollar facility with all of these veteran coaches. And look, it's Shawn Michaels, one of the greatest wrestlers of mm-hmm. all time. He's in charge of running things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, it's very, it's all very impressive to the media and for people who maybe aren't looking as, um, closely at the results of this place i think and that's what makes it successful marketing strategy obviously i've never visited the performance center but it 10 years with the output that they've had uh is is this disappointing to me i would be disappointed if if i were in charge of the performance center and we've put this what i have to imagine is tens and tens of millions of dollars into this facility um and 10 years and we have virtually unlimited resources at least on the scale of any other wrestling school and and yet the the talent output hasn't been super impressive to me. It would suggest to me that there's some sort of more fundamental issue happening with with the, the, their training process. Yeah, and or, or just how they ch- what they think of as is is important to being a star. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always we've talked about this before, but I've always wrestling is an art form. Wrestling is about, um, and if you look at art, the most you know, groundbreaking, exciting pieces of art are people that are attempting to do things that have never been done before and people that are allowed to be creative and, and independent. And the way WWE's Performance Center seems to approach wrestling is very formulaic, which is this is the proper way to do everything. And they've got a, an assembly line process of, of, you know, men and women with great conventional looks for television that I would say a lot of like the, the performance center trainees have solid fundamentals as wrestlers. There's not a ton of people that they churn out that are like really bad wrestlers, on, especially on the male side. Um, but a lot of it is the same. A lot of it is guys who look the same and act the same and talk the same. And that's never really going to be successful in the sense of pro wrestling. And, and maybe um, there's like some, some just sort of – maybe this is – a, a, a fact of, or, or a likelihood of, of human nature is that when you've got a, a an organization that has accumulated such power within its field as W has, that maybe that that place is not the best place to educate people on how to be a great artist, <laughs> a, a, a great practitioner of, of the craft of pro wrestling, because power does not necessarily is not necessarily interested in advancing an art form power is interested in preserving and advancing its power. Well, I have to say it goes to the male talent that they're signing in the pure category, right? Like these are football players, very tall guys, bodybuilders, people that probably maybe didn't even watch wrestling before. If you look, if you look at who are the considered the best workers in the world, Brian Danielson and, you know, AJ, AJ Styles and Jonathan Gresham, you talk about in ring, like technical workers, they were all wrestling fans, and they're short guys. It's not like WWE is going to sign a five foot ten amateur wrestler, you know. And that guy might turn out to be a huge star, but that's not what they're signing. If we're in that pure no experience level, right? Um, and if you don't, I don't know. I find it hard to believe that somebody can be a major star in wrestling without a certain level of curiosity on how to be better. And a lot of that would come from watching other wrestling. I mean, Batista was the last success of that. Right, like a guy would you no could say like Roman Reigns, obvious. Yeah, but Roman Reigns obviously Roman knew Reigns. wrestling. <laughs> right, that's true. That he is a, that obviously is in his family, um, and a lot of the most successful performance center trainees, recruits, or or WWE developed talent have been second or third generation wrestlers, um, for sure. I think 
to me, the, the problem I, the problem more I have with the performance center is I don't think it churns out wrestlers who ironically, cause this is allegedly what WWE does the best. I don't think they turn out wrestlers that have like a real character that are able to connect with audiences and they don't have the kind of charisma that you need to have to be a major star in wrestling. They have the look, they might have solid in-ring fundamentals, but without that charisma and crowd connection, it's hard for them to really break out, especially given the way that WWE likes to tell its stories, which is very based on those two things. Um, and a lot of it is, you know, you look at NXT right now, it's like every every wrestler there has some sort of wacky character um, that's either a job or a hobby. Like they have the girl now that's a big streamer and they have, um, you know, it, it, they're all given this this character, but none of them feel real. Number, none of them feel realistic. Um, and I think like someone like Sami Zayn, who's managed to become a huge success in WWE recently, uh, is largely done so because his character feels real and he's able to connect with the audience emotionally. And I don't see a lot of the, you know, the, the model performance center people able to do that. Um, so the, the, the final point that I would want to make besides maybe there's some issues with the self-produced wrestling developmental environment is if, if I were WWE, I would want to, fix my, my, my developmental system for one thing, how, and in whatever ways we, we try to have a discussion about that in the last several minutes, but also be really opening and willing and, and most, you know, I guess explicitly so to recruit wrestling talent from all these other wrestling companies, whether that's in Mexico, Japan, or the United States, and particularly to look at AEW as sort of a developmental system the more that in and, and what the, what's going on with cody right now is an important strategic step towards that end by that i mean position aew as a, a, a number two even more so by by taking people who come out of aew and then have bigger careers in wwe where if Cody, let's say Cody beats Roman Reigns at WrestleMania, oh, he has this great moment, and then and then you do continuous iterations. Not necessarily that same. They have to main event WrestleMania and win the title there, but continue to create the perception that this is this this is maybe where you know people start their careers and they 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 take a stepping they take they use AEW as a stepping stone to get to the really really big show, which in terms of media distribution and money is, is pretty much undeniable, right? And this is where people really advance. We, people get, get some traction here in AEW or, or even maybe it's Jay White coming out of New Japan or it's, or it's others coming out of CML or AAA. And this is where their career really blasts off and they become the biggest wrestling stars in the world. Um, to agree with you on that, Brandon, I mean, look at, the 90s, other than The Rock, the biggest stars in WWE in the late 90s Attitude Era were all from WCW. Triple H, Mick Foley, Stone Cold Steve Austin. I mean, The Undertaker, too. About before. <laughs> like, the, flow of, the flow of talent in, in the two big wrestling war periods that, that we've lived through have, have been very telling about where the momentum is going. Right when WCW was on the rise, a lot of talent was moving from WF to WCW. When WCW was on the downfall, a lot of talent was moving from WCW to WWF. Trivia time. Okay. Throughout Roman Reigns' very long title reign, 
he has had 27 televised title defenses. Most of them on on pay-per-views events, but a few were on episodes of SmackDown. How many of those defenses were against a wrestler trained by the Performance Center? I'll say zero. So these are... By by what definition? Yeah, well, yeah. (laughs) Uh, let's just, let's say anyone who would but by our, our, our definition either, of, of pure here. Yeah. Yeah. Pure or mixed. Um, can I, can I pull up the, the, the would it be cheating if I look at the sheet? Yes, it would be cheating. Okay, I won't look at the sheet. Easily go I'm just going to say zero. My, yeah, it might be zero because I'm struggling to think. I mean, Matt Riddle comes to mind. Uh, but he wouldn't be mixed. He would be. Who do you, oh, I think he does classify as mixed. Does he? Because then only awesome pure. No, no, no. Oh, yeah. Matt Riddle definitely had a hundred matches. I thought he was on mixed as your uh, on the list. No, I'm going to cheat if I look, but I'm pretty sure he's he, he, no on your list. On I thought he was down as mixed. Matt Riddle is no. He's 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 an outsider. He's got yeah. He's 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 got a lot. Evolve was running a lot uh, for a while, so like him. Yeah, no, I Austin agree that Perry, I would not uh, count him as a. I would count him as an outsider. I don't know. He might be under a hundred matches though. He's he's anyway. He's an outsider. Anyway, the answer is two. Two. So there was uh, a match against Braun Strowman on an episode of SmackDown. That was his second title defense. That was back in 2020. And then, obviously, Logan Paul at Crown Jewel. Okay. So I think Logan, Logan Paul, Paul is who's, an interesting case. I think we're spending a minute or two on, too. In, in that, in, in, in comments that Shawn Michaels has made publicly, I think, in, in media calls about how they trained him, in that certainly WWE would want to tell you. In, in public comments that Logan Paul has done an amazing job. And, and my God, he had a, he had a, a really cool match with, with Roman Reigns in Saudi Arabia. And then wow, that video of him jumping off the top rope to the outside. Um, and Shawn Michaels has talked about how they trained him and that they trained him backwards. Is, I believe it's the terminology used. They trained him backwards and they, they taught him how to do big stuff for this main event pay-per-view match and, and how, Oh yeah. Lately we've been trying to teach him the fundamentals to put it all together. I think it tells you something about, it tells you something about what it takes to be a, a, a really valuable wrestler in that I would never tell anybody that, that fundamentals aren't important. And that's how we, we, we trained people on the fundamentals first before they were ever allowed to do anything else. Um, but, but there's sort of this lie that's, that's protected in wrestling. And it's not about how the businesses work, but this lie that's protected in wrestling about how you have to do things a certain way. And if you don't do things a certain way, you're wrong, you're bad, and everything's bad. And what they've done with Logan Paul really undermines the truth of what I think is, is the common wisdom that everybody's supposed to blindly accept and not question in, in wrestling generally. And this is true beyond WWE, if you know what I mean there. Um, I think, well... I think like WWE's main event style, particularly Roman Reigns' main event style, is like super spot based. So if you just focus on doing like four or five spots over and over again, you could look competent um, yeah. the, in those matches. The, the right in and a correct way. way thing to do is is whatever a power honors and whatever the experienced, respected vets say right. is good. So you're talking Never philosophically, or like even economically, what gets over? What what gets over is what right. gets over. I mean, so like. For Logan Paul and Pat McAfee, and this to goes to your, to your Young Bucks point that you, that you bring up sometimes about what what they said in their book about they just started to do everything that that people told them not to do, and they got more over for doing it. Yes, the Young Bucks started really take careers started taking off when they realized that like, which is not advice that would that give they to were... everybody to follow, but that worked for them. Well, <laughs> right, the Young Bucks say like people would tell them don't do so many high spots, 
And then they noticed that high spots were getting over, so they just started doing more of them. Stop doing so and many so, super kicks. Yeah. And then what happened? They did more super kicks and they got over. Um, I think like with McAfee and Logan Paul, what really stands out to yeah. me as far as just comparing them to your like typical WWE performance center recruit is not necessarily their ring work, um, which has been very impressive given their limited experience, but more of just like their charisma and personality and their people who are coming from backgrounds outside of wrestling, but are used to performing, performing on a stage for lack of a better term and how that translates into them feeling very charismatic and over as opposed to not to pick on them, but like madcap Moss who feels like he's just this guy playing this, this weird character on television. And he looks at the hard camera and he makes faces kind of like what WWE wants their talent to learn how to do as opposed to people coming from outside who just immediately outshine WWE trained talent when it comes to getting a character over and being charismatic and feeling like a real alive person. Um, I think that's really telling. Okay. Um, we were, we were short on topics and we've, I think we finally finished, uh, finished the, the WPC topic. That was where it was not going to be enough for this program today, but we're past hour and a half. Um, yeah, this topic alone was over an hour. <laughs> yeah. Um, finally, finally, Kijimuto after his, his, how many retirement shows did he have in, in this, this big tour? 12 of them or so. Um, Kijimuto finally did, did have his final match, um, on the 21st. What day of the week was that? That was the, that was Tuesday at the Tokyo Dome in a show ran by Pro Wrestling Noah. He wrestled Tetsu Naito and then he had one more match with Masahiro Chono. Masahiro Chono slapping on the STF and tapping out Kijimuto. Um, this Tokyo Dome show for Noah was announced, had an announced attendance of 30,096, which is the biggest attendance since January 4th, 2020, Wrestle Kingdom 14, night one. Um, they also had a second show, uh, night two, which did almost the same number as this is announced as. Um, so this was one of the biggest shows in Japan uh, in years for Keji. It was the biggest since the pandemic. Right, yeah, um, um, and uh, I, I understand this. This did very well in pay per view as well. Um, I don't know if we'll, we'll ever get like some real concrete numbers on that, but uh, this was this was not a show that you could just watch on a streaming service that you pay a monthly fee for. I understand, right? This is not not part of Russell Universe. You know, monthly. I don't fee. think it was. Yeah. It was. Um, it was very. It's very interesting um, as far as like the star power that Kijimuto has um, and how interest in his retirement match was able to draw this kind of crowd for pro wrestling. Noah, which isn't doing really gigantic crowds. And, and, and I know shows that don't have Muto on them have done pretty poorly. I think they might've done a show that had like 800 fans at Corcoran hall. And um, real quick, how ba- how far back would you, I don't have the answer. How, how far back would you have to go to find a non new Japan show in Japan that drew more than this show? If we assume that this 30,000 is close to the real figure, I th- but we have You'd to go back to, to 2005 Noah Tokyo Dome show. I think you would have to go back to the Noah, the major Noah shows. I, I can't remember what order. I want to say Noah Destiny um, in 2005, which had the final Masawa, big Masawa Kawada match. Yeah. Um, there was also like, I want to say Noah Grand Voyage, which maybe was a year before in the Tokyo Dome. But yeah, you'd have to go back almost 20 years, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, that one, that one was announced uh, 2005, July. 
uh, Tokyo Dome Show by NOAA was announced at 62,000. I'm sure that number yeah. is not real. Yes, but those it, but were it, the fake Tokyo Dome numbers, but a sellout. But it may have been much, over 30,000, yeah. 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 Um, so, um, huge success. But it also goes to speak about the kind of uh, mainstream fan appeal that that Kijimuto and his generation of professional wrestlers had in Japan compared to even people like Tanahashi and Okada, um, who I think we all recognize as, as major, successful, huge stars and excellent professional wrestlers. But that era of wrestling in Japan in the 90s and, and how big of a star um, Kijimuto was in Japan, it just it's kind of uncomparable to wrestlers today it's 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 not dissimilar to like stone cold and steve austin Mm -hmm. versus like john cena or or certainly roman reigns and the everyone there is a big star but there's just a certain level of difference between the kind of mainstream appeal that a wrestler like kichimuto had um and and by the way some some of the biggest shows in japanese wrestling history have been retirement shows whether we're talking about the the, the enoki show in 98 at the tokyo dome and choshu's retirement which was what year was that? I don't I don't know if well, which Choshu retirement. Well, the one the Tokyo Dome with with New Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are two of the biggest shows in wrestling history, and certainly in Japanese wrestling history. Right, and this was, um, and and Muto's really the last guy from that era of pro wrestling that could do a retirement show like this. And Kibashi had a retirement that was at Budokan, which um, did very well mm-hmm. for Budokan Hall, mm-hmm. um, but. And maybe I could, could have see run. a Tanahashi having a big send off like this, right? Tanahashi, but like an in, independent of like Wrestle Kingdom, I could see Tanahashi having like a Wrestle Kingdom match. Mm-hmm. That's his last big match. But I also think Tanahashi's never going to retire, which is another thing. And maybe Muto is not really retiring, but but that's also part of like the finality of it in the sense that a lot of wrestlers maybe could have had this, but they didn't retire at the right time or whatever. They kind of just kept wrestling, like. Muto's kind of feels like the last major star of his generation that hasn't retired, but people like Tatsumi Fujinami, who are, mm-hmm. who are much older than Muto, are still, still wrestling. I don't know if a Fujinami retirement match would be like... At this stage, I think. You know. At this big deal. I, I, maybe it would be, but um, I don't know enough about the Japan market and kind of like how big a name Fujinami is as an active wrestler, but he's, you know, he pops up on like preliminary tag matches and on certain shows. He was at, I think he wrestled at Wrestle Kingdom this year. Um, I mean, look at Minoru Suzuki. When so, is he going to slow down? <laughs> he's already like Liger had his retirement. That was in, in 2020. Mm-hmm. That was at Wrestle Kingdom though, right? Correct. Yeah. That, that was, that was the, that January 4th, we should put the slide back. The January 4th, yeah. 2020 show. Um, which is night two. Yeah. It, it is the most yeah. the most attended event in oh, the last the, four the, years or so in Japan. The thing about this this Kijimuto show is is that it really was in that thirty thousand figure. It really was entirely built around Kijimuto's retirement. This is not a promotion in Noah that could do any number close to this without this 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 match. Uh, as a headliner, it wasn't like an annual event the way Wrestle Kingdom is, where you'll sell you know a certain amount of tickets based on the mm-hmm. the name alone. Um, there were other matches on the show. There were things like you know uh, Okada versus Kiyomiya, which yeah. is a which a match between New Japan's world champion and Noah's world champion. Um, but really, this was all about this Muto match um, and just kind of like the celebrity status he has. I was listening to um, to Wrestling Observer Radio from Friday. I want to say maybe it was Saturday. Um, and they were talking about like 
what could be could this be done in the U.S.? Could uh, like a Sting retirement I, I match? Could be drug- like look look at Ric Flair's retirement, which in a in a sense was a business wise was a was kind of a major success, right? I mean, it's been mm-hmm. pay per view. Who knows what it did? But yeah, it seems to have been a major success. And I mean, it certainly they didn't put it in a stadium. I mean, maybe it could have been. No, I, it would be bigger, like seven thousand fans for that. Up. But it, it, it did very well for a non WWE non AEW event. Right, and, and, but part of it also is like the timing has to be right. Like, like Ric Flair already kind of had his retirement match at WrestleMania twenty four. Like, Flair people had thought many, that was many kinda, retirements. Right, he and he yes, he had many, many before that. But as far as like the big final one, mm-hmm. the one that had a sense of finality to it. I think a lot of people would point to that WrestleMania 24 match. And so now he's coming out and he's really old at this point. And people are, you know, there's a lot of, there's like, people didn't know what kind of state physically he was going to be in during that match. The number cage match has in the database is 6,800 for Ric Flair's last match in July. So that, that, that's, that's one thing. But I just, I think that like Muto's kind of coming at like, now Muto's, physically was just totally washed up too at this point um but but he was active he, you know he was active. he was he is active i don't think he had ever had a retirement match before yeah he was actively this, working was, like not more than yeah, like fujinami pairing up once in a while you know yeah he was he I was think, actively I think fujinami working he did have a retirement match in 2003 he probably did i mean i think all so these guys so probably have been to that well <laughs> yeah yeah but i, I think with muto so, so the Muto is kind of like different in the sense that he's he's a real legend retiring in a sense that people, at least this time, think that this is really the last time they're going to see him as opposed to a lot of other people where it's like, mm, this is probably not the last time we're going to see them, even though it's being labeled as a retirement match. Mm-hmm. And I think like in the U.S., I like, could does, – does, does WWE – and WWE to my knowledge has never done something like this. Where they had, they've had, you know, guys have retirement matches at WrestleMania, like Kurt Angle did a few years ago, and Ric Flair did at WrestleMania 24. But WWE has never tried to create like a stadium event based around Undertaker's one wrestler's retirement. Was not known to. What was Undertaker's last match, and, and was it? It was the uh, the the AJ the Styles cinematic match. Yeah, cinematic, yeah, and yeah, uh, was it? And and there was no advertisement that that would be his last match, right? No, I think some people might have assumed it was going to be. Because they were doing but, a documentary. Right, which wouldn't have been the first time that people assumed that that, that was going to be Undertaker's last well, he, match. Well, he says he retires after every WrestleMania and then he comes back. But right. um, but yeah, uh, I mean, Shawn Michaels, you know, the the career versus title match um, right. would be one. But 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 that it's was part of WrestleMania. These have been – whether it was Flair at WrestleMania or it was Michaels at WrestleMania, those are stipulation matches. not like this is it no matter what. Yeah, I think with W – and so like this would be something like – but to create an independent event and try to run a stadium show and run a special event. And there's nothing stopping WWE from doing this. They would just need to have the right big name talent willing to step away. Um, Cena's last match might do something good if they, you know. Yeah. And, and the reason we don't have a lot of these in wrestling is because most people don't want to retire mm-hmm. for good. The wrestlers don't like that finality. Yeah. Um, when it comes to their retirement and they like the big in especially big stars, they can always be lured out for one big match because it's yeah. usually very lucrative for them to do some. And a lot of them will create the spotlight. Um, and then really Saudi Arabia think, has changed a lot of that. We've seen Shawn Michaels come out of retirement. For one match. Right. Um, it, but, but like, it's like, but I, I think like a WWE chose to do it. Like let's, let's, let's use edge as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, just, I'm not saying Edge has any plans to retire or anything like that, but Edge as a, as a as a wrestler of some name value, um, who's 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 obviously older and has probably talked about retirement at some point. 
uh, was retired medically for a long time. But like, what's let's say Edge is like, I'm retiring in November. Like WWE could do like a long storyline building up to his final match, and they could maybe try to run. I don't know if they could run a full stadium, but maybe they could run a, a you know they could sell like out like a basketball arena in Toronto. They could sell out the the it's not called the Air Canada Center, the Scotiabank Arena uh, in Toronto. You know, built and do this big long build. They could do that, and they could have a special you know a new a new PLE they can throw on Peacock. You know, they could. That's something they could totally do, and it would probably be really good if if you did it. Um, they. I know Dave speculated that AEW could try something like Sting. I was just going to bring that up, could, yeah. Right. Sting's the guy, right, who who has never had a retirement match. He does have, um, a, a, you know, a generation-spanning fan base. If you made a really, really big deal about it, you would get people who would want to fly into a Sting retirement show in Georgia. You could put it on pay-per-view if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, Sting versus Darby is his last match or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could you could you could do something like that, and it would be cool. Like, I would like to see an independent event like that. I think the Muto event. I have no affinity for Muto at all, um, so like, I wasn't really like getting like you know balled up in nostalgia for him during this this final match. But but it was a really impressive spectacle and a very um, you know if you like Muto, it's a very like heartwarming kind of fun event to watch. Um, you know, his final match and, and they, they know his production is outstanding in that regard. So I think it'd be something that I would like to see in the U S just cause I think it would be a really cool event. It could be a WWE event or an AEW event it just has to be kind of the right talent and name. Mm-hmm. Other majors, the Junaki Yama, I guess, but he wouldn't be as big as Muto. Certainly. Um, no, like, like that's like, it's just a different generation of, of star mm-hmm. basically. Different, um, different level of star. I would say. Too, and too, I too. like, is Akiyama ever going to really retire? He seems about, Akiyama seems like he's 10 years away from retiring. Yeah, at all times. Well, that's like Tanahashi. Tanahashi's what, like 45? Something like that, yeah. Like, so Tanahashi's realistically like 15 years away from retiring, barring like terrible injury. No, I'm serious. Like when it comes to in wrestling terms, like how old are guys, big stars, how old are they? What's the average age of the the big star when they retire? It's, I don't know, mid-50s, maybe later. Yeah. Um. Okay. Ric Flair, the last match, he he just wrestled last year, and he's, what, 73? Yeah. 74? Yeah. Um, so we're a long way away from some of these names that are active now. Even guys like Tanahashi were clearly on the back nine of their career from them actually having the definitive match. I mean, Kijimuto stopped being like a really big, what I would consider like a really big star, main event star, like 15 years ago. Yuji Nagata. No, that would not be nearly as big. He's never retired. Never. He's, he's never aging, in fact. He's triple crown <laughs> champion, Yuji Nagata. Yes. All right. Um, he's got to have that match with you, too. So no, I, I don't know. It's going to take a lot for me to, to take a booking. If Yuji Nagata, promoters out there, if you can bring in Yuji Nagata, Brandon will come wrestle for you to wrestle Yuji Nagata. Just Wait. putting that out there. I am uh, not necessarily 100% open to it. Um, so WrestleMania ticket update. Um they opened up some more seats behind the stage. They're going behind the stage. They're going um, uh, forbidden door here. They're they're opening the forbidden. Those seats. tickets better sell quick on the secondary market. Otherwise, they better have, those better have high prices on the secondary market. Otherwise, this event is going to be a failure. Yes, this is. Uh, they're at according to WrestleTix, WrestleMania Night One is at fifty four thousand at last count 
54,000 out for night one, 55,000 out for night two. I understand they, they made an announcement on SmackDown about some additional tickets being opened, and, and Russell Tix has pointed out here that some more tickets have been opened behind the stage. Um, so there, there are still tickets left for, for WrestleMania. For why, why are they opening up? I, I'm confused by the stadium configuration. Why are they opening up these tickets behind the stage when they have 54,000 tickets? They're, you would they're, think they're that sick they're, of AEW diehards taunting them about not you know, open up the open up the back end of the stage. But but, but they should have thing out. The, but but theoretically, they would have the uh, you know the stadium's really big. I, I think w- we speculated probably like even with the stage setup, it could probably sell. 60,000 tickets maybe it seems like two like they it seems like they still they would theoretically still have you know spots in the stadium that aren't behind the stage which are kind of like your last um the last tickets to sell that in the hard game section i think i would think all of it is open except for this this top level behind this and and the lower levels behind the stage what what is the um what do they do do you have off the top of your head do you have the um last year's WrestleMania attendance, night one and night two? I can look it up real quick. Uh, why do you ask? While I look it up. Just, just, just as a comparison between the two. I'm going to say 65-ish, but I will give you the exact number in a moment. Because um, one was slightly higher than the other. They were very, very close in, in yeah. number. Um, WrestleMania. Yeah, I think like night one was a little bit bigger than night two. Dallas AT&T Stadium, we had 64,000 Five hundred and thirteen, according to Russell Tix, and night two sixty five thousand six hundred and fifty three. Mm-hmm. So about, about a thousand difference between the two. Yeah. So that I don't, I don't know the difference in stadium. I imagine the stadiums have got to be of similar size. Well, AT&T Stadium but, is the biggest NFL stadium, right? Not really. No. Um, it's it's it, conceded it over a hundred thousand. It was originally the biggest NFL stadium from a seating capacity, based on kind of like a gimmick. That they had for to, to kind of announce that, but since then I don't. It's one of the largest ones, but I do not believe it is the largest anymore. I want to say FedEx or Meta, MetLife Stadium is the biggest in in, in NFL as terms according NFL to seating. a quick Google search. I get eighty thousand for AT and T Stadium in Dallas, seventy thousand for SoFi, seventy for SoFi. Yeah, that's football capacity, I assume. Yeah, mm-hmm. all of this comes gonna... sweet like number of suites they have, and suites aren't being counted in all of yeah. in this Ticketmaster account. Mm-hmm. They're building smaller um, stadiums too. I think the one in Las Vegas, Legion's like sixty-five thousand. Not like less. Yeah. Well, a lot of a lot of in, in stadium construction, and this is a big reason why college. Part of this is this. This is a big reason why college football stadiums are bigger than NFL stadiums. Is that NFL stadiums have a lot of suites and a lot of corporate areas, and have a lot of space being taken up by those kind of things that are more lucrative than just having seats, as opposed to. Older stadiums and certainly like college stadiums where you just have these rows of bleachers where you can jam in way more people. Um, and maybe a Los Angeles-based stadium has more room for uh, corporate you know, seats like that than maybe a Dallas-based stadium. But I assume they're pretty I – guess, I, guess, I guess my point is, is I'm, I'm curious to know, like, can we really compare – the attendance between WrestleMania last year versus WrestleMania this year and like use that as a fair barometer to look at like maybe some matches drew better. Maybe some matches didn't draw as better Was Steve Austin, the big selling point for WrestleMania last year. Um, how many more tickets can they sell for, for these two WrestleMania nights? Um, I mean, according, feels like according to their comment, the company about, is about this being the, the biggest gate ever. I, I mean, it's, it's above at least according to them. It's above last year's gate. 
Although, oh, I'm sure because tickets are more expensive price, in Los Angeles, yeah. and I assume the Los Angeles market alone is 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 much more lucrative for them to run than Dallas. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, but I'm curious to know, like, it feels like you know, like WWE's attendance for their you know Raw and SmackDown shows yeah. are ahead of where they were last year. Yeah, um, and viewership and, and ratings seem to be doing pretty well. So it feels like in those barometers, WWE is a hotter company than they were. Um, at this time last year, will that be reflected in WrestleMania attendance or is the difference in stadiums just, it's hard to figure that out as far as if they can draw more or less uh, than they did in Dallas. seems like the Dallas stadium is a little bit bigger. So maybe, you know, if they do 60,000 says 65,000, that's, that's about equal. Yeah, if I... Nick Khan said they're both going, they're going to sell out both nights at WrestleMania. Um, again, what is a sellout when, is that just how many tickets you put, you just decide to distribute, but Right. I mean, and there's, it's not as if I'm, I'm looking at t- Ticketmaster right now, which I can share. Um, I, if, if I look at night one, I, I can still find $75 tickets. So it's not as if the, the tickets that are left are, are like platinum tickets that are worth, that are, that cost hundreds of dollars. Um, you can still get, you know, what I imagine are, you know, middle of the road prices here, uh, for, and a lot of those, like it says, like, if you, if you look at where those are, a lot of those seem to be in those new sections that they just put on sale. Right. True. Yeah. Like behind the stage, yeah. um, which makes sense. The new, the tickets that are available are going to be tickets that are not in optimal viewing locations because all of the best seats have already been sold. Um, it's going to be a hugely successful show. There's no other way to look at it uh, other than that. Um, and obviously doing the two nights of WrestleMania has been a huge, huge success for WWE by pretty much every measure. Not only do you get the two gates, but you also get two nights of massive viewership for your for your events on Peacock, which I'm sure makes their their partners they're very happy um what do you think is going to main event the first night of wrestlemania if we think that cody rhodes versus Sami Zayn is going to main event the second night <laughs> oh I thought, yeah. or, i'm sorry no sorry cody rhodes versus roman reigns is going to main event the second yeah. night um just looking real quick and we do have official platinum that's like here's a here's a you know upper half of the first level that is a, a platinum seat that's 741 dollars. so maybe those those new seats that have been opened are are almost the only reasonably priced tickets left. Um, maybe, maybe tag match will main event first night. Usos versus Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens. If not that, then uh, Charlotte and Rhea Ripley, then that. Yeah. yeah. You think that, so that would be, I mean, you can put anything in the main event and call it a main event. Realistically, things. like the yeah. tickets are already sold. So you can, you um, could put, um, you could put Rick Boogs against uh, Baron Corbin in the main event. If you wanted to, Right, you could you could do that, but I'm when thinking more like Peacock. I don't we're not know. talking about the main event. We're talking about like what is going to be the most heavily promoted show at match on WrestleMania one, night one. Uh, if we accept that, there's only going to be one Roman Reigns match, and that's going to be the only world title match, and it's going to be on night two against Cody. I would would you do? I would. I think the Usos versus Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens when that match comes to fruition is going to be the biggest match on the show outside of the world title match. Yeah. I mean, um, thinking it through, I guess. Yeah. Awesome Theory John Cena is a that's a rumored match. That, yeah, know. that's true. Just because because of Cena's star power, similar to how Austin was the headline was like the headliner on. I would think they want to put a, put a women's match on top of one of these nights, and and if it's going to be one of them, it's going to be the Charlotte Flair match with Rhea Ripley. Right. I guess I'm saying like I don't consider that like the second biggest match for WrestleMania. Um, as far as a selling point for people. So not necessarily like a, so I guess like main event is not as really what I'm talking about. Cause main event is like a 
phrase, you can, a marketing term you can use to say, we had a woman's main event again and a men's main event. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking more like, what are they going to do to make sure that since tickets are already sold, like people are actually going to tune into WrestleMania night one um, to, to, you know, what's going to be the anchor of that show. I don't think, I don't get the sense that Ray Ripley versus Charlotte is a WrestleMania caliber headlining match, even if they choose how, to how put do it you in the main event. confirm the answer to this question? Yeah. What do you look at after the fact or leading up to the show? I guess there's nothing you really can. I mean, you could look at Peacock viewing data, right? If yeah. you if they had that, but I'm sure they wouldn't release that in a way that we could easily no. digest. No. Um, you could even make an argument you know, for Logan Paul at- and Seth Rollins because Logan Paul star power. See, I'm just starting to think of like other ways that can go. I'm I'm just trying to think like if I'm a, if I'm a WWE fan, um, which you are. Yes, of course, which I am, um, and I will definitely be watching both nights of WrestleMania live. Um, like, what is going to be like? If I, or if, let's say I'm like just a Peacock subscriber, and I, maybe I watched the Royal Rumble. Maybe I'm, you know, maybe I've, I've dabbled with Raw or SmackDown a little bit. Maybe I was into the, the Bloodline feud a little bit. Um, what is going to get me to watch WrestleMania Night One? What's going to get me to be like, I can't do anything on Saturday night, guys. I've got to watch four and a half hours of this wrestling show. Um, what are the matches that are going to get me invested in watching it? Um, a historical perspective of the promoting career of Paul Bosch. Now, see, if it was Paul Boss' predecessor, Morris Siegel, I would be way into okay. it. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, but, but I'm just, I'm thinking like, obviously, like Roman Reigns versus Cody, even though I think Sami Zayn should probably be in that match somehow. Um, that feels like a, a big match. That does feel like, I think, going to be like a big motivating match for people to watch WrestleMania. And what is the other match that's going to do that? I think Cena's presence helps a lot. Obviously, we know he's a big move for a business. Did you know, I know there wasn't a slide. Did you see how many tickets John Cena sold for that yeah, Boston we, show? We talked about it on Thursday in the WrestleMania 30. Yeah. Yes. yes we did. So John Cena has over 2000 tickets according to WrestleTix since he's been announced. Yeah. So, um, and not, he, not even him like in a match or doing it. He's literally he's just going to be there. Yeah. Um, I assume physically he might, yeah. yeah, maybe not even that he could probably, if they just announced him and he was via zoom, he'd probably sell a lot of tickets too. Um, but, you know, maybe Cena. I, th- I think the Usos versus Sami Zayn match is probably the most momentous match that they have outside of the main event uh, of, for the world title. So that's what I would put on as a kind of like the headlining act of, of night one. But mm-hmm. they don't have – like I don't think they're going to have Steve Austin this year. Um, no. And Austin obviously I think helped a lot. Night one outdrew night two slightly. Um I know last year in Dallas and, and a lot of that was advertised be... in a match, but, but he was advertised. Right. But he, everyone knew he was going to be there. Yeah. Um, and I probably assumed it was going to get physical in some, some sense. Do you think Vince McMahon makes an appearance at WrestleMania this year? No, I don't. Is, right now. Is I, say town? No. I think he's in town. I think is, is, is the, is the yeah. question. Is he in LA? I, I think, I think he April will be. 1st. I mean, yeah. my opinion, you know, I might think he, I don't think he shows up on the pay-per-view now, but my opinion might change like a week before is he, the show. Is he in the venue? And would we know? I guess we would. That would probably. We might be having a very forward. different, I don't know anything, but people are hinting online a lot, that there's a lot, there's a lot more smoke of him being back in creative based on some, I think Sean Ross Sapp had a report that some wrestlers believe that Vince is back. A talent reached out to, to Sean Ross Sapp. Mm-hmm. Believing that he was back. But there's some other smoke. Wade, Wade I mean, Keller reported that, he was specifically told that Vince is not back. Right. But what is back is also, I think, a key definition when we're talking about this. Like, 
is is he is he backstage I, talking I, to everyone? I take and it is as he a ripping minimum, up scripts. He's not, he's not at TV. He's not. He's involved, not physically there. He's not involved in creative meetings. Presumably, he's having conversations with Paul Vec. Who knows how how hands on how how influential D- Dave, he's trying to 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 be. Dave has said that Vince was involved in the Sami Zayn Roman Reigns match from Elimination Chamber. I was involved too. Um, I was there. Are you familiar with Vince McMahon's thinking? Uh, somewhat, but I've never met him. So I, I, I have watched him do things that have involved his thinking over the years, though. So. All right. Any, anything to plug before we go? Uh, yeah, the Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast. Uh, big news for us. We're now going to be a member of the Voices of Wrestling Network. Um, what does that mean for people? That means that our podcast will now be part of the network, which means you'll be able to access it uh, anywhere where you get your podcasts. I know previously I always said it was on YouTube and it will remain on YouTube. But now if you go on Spotify, if you go on Amazon, you go on Apple podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, look up gentlemen's wrestling podcasts. You can definitely check out. We have one, our my most recent episode is uploaded already. That's a conversation I had with Rich Krejci about the way we communicate about AEW and AEW discourse and kind of the way people talk about AEW and, and what influences that. Is this um, an every week podcast now? I, you know, it doesn't have a set schedule. I, my, my, in my mind, it's bi-weekly. That, that wasn't um, part of we'll the, see the, term, the terms of the, the written contract? It's bi-weekly. I mean, I, I can't disclose what's in the contract. Um, not not going to get, but, in, get into the, uh, the, es- the escalators and, and what, what the rights fee was? Uh, I appreciate you asking, but I can't comment on that. Okay. I, I know you have to ask that. I'll, I'll, tr- I'll try to ask people familiar with the matter. Yeah, if you could f- ask people that are familiar with my thinking, then perhaps okay. you'll get it. But um, <laughs> that's the Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast, uh, now part of the Voices of Wrestling Network. And I appreciate, um, you know, Rich and Joe for, for, for supporting the idea and backing it. And obviously support everyone who is listening to the show, which I know uh, a lot of the, my listeners also listen to WrestleNomics, which isn't a surprise. But um, anyone who's, who's, who's listened to the show uh, and, and supported it since, since it started a few years ago. So thank you so much uh, to everyone who's, who's been a part of that. Yeah. And Voice of the Wrestling guys have been very supportive to, to WrestleNomics over the years as well. Appreciate that. Yes, you guys are like a, it's like a alumnus of the, yes. the you guys are alum, alumnus of the VOW network. Yes. Okay. Golo. I uh, just say if you're in a Buffalo area, I'm going to be at Helium Comedy Club tonight, which is one of the premier comedy clubs in the Northeast. So, are, are you the promoter? Are you in charge of that? No, I'm not. I'm just a no, just okay. a performer. Uh, I do promote shows, but I, I do not promote them. Just a. We'd be blading. Are you blading tonight? <laughs> Maybe who knows? <laughs> have you thought about working? Have you thought about working blading into your act? I think maybe that would get you know get get crowdy. That would get people involved. Maybe there'll be a circle of fans that will really enjoy it and argue with people on Twitter who don't enjoy it. And yeah, it'll be great. well, yeah, and, and you you can't do it too often, of course. The deathmatch comedian Chris Gello. I don't think the, I don't think the commission will be there tonight either. So you could probably get away with it. Possibly. I have seen go over to like a guard. I have seen people in New York try to have death matches at concerts. So. <laughs> Okay, great. Okay. Uh, s- support your local deathmatch concert. We'll uh, talk to you next time. Bye. <laughs>